This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tai Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with William D. Glenn about his latest book, I Came Here Seeking a Person, A Vital Story of Grace, One Gay Man's Spiritual Journey, published by Paulist Press. William D. Glenn, a psychotherapist and spiritual director, is a longtime leader in the LGBTQ plus community, influenced by Thomas Merton, Carl Jung, the Society of Jesus, and queer culture. Bill elucidates moments in his life from his childhood in an Irish Catholic family, mid 20th century, through his nearly decade as a Jesuit, to his subsequent life as a sober out married gay man. Former president of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, executive director of Continuum HIV Services, Bill is currently the chair of the Board of Trustees of the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, an interreligious graduate university, a co-founder of the Center for LGBTQ and Gender Studies at the Pacific School of Religion, he has focused on the intersection of queer and soul for the past four decades. I Came Here Seeking a Person, One Gay Man's Spiritual Journey, is Bill's interior-focused memoir. This volume details his complex journey of faith, in practice, over the span of his lifetime, shaped by loving and courageous individuals and scores of writers, spiritual, intellectual, cultural, psychological, imaginative, whose words have formed, instructed, confronted, and healed. His book is an invitational, accessible, and true story of grace. Bill Glenn, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here and happy to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And um, we have a question we um, customarily ask first-time guests on the podcast, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and uh, childhood. And um, if any experiences from that period of your life arise that you would now point to as prefiguring the course that your life eventually took. We, of course, having read I Came Here Seeking a Person, your, your book that we're discussing today, we, we have a sense of that. But uh, we'd like you to I, I'm, I'm curious personally what le- what would come to mind having read so much detail about your life, because in many ways, this is a, um, an, uh, a long autobiography, this book. Um, I'm curious what comes to your mind and what you would share with uh, podcast listeners about it. Uh, when you began to speak and formulate that question, uh, an image came to my mind that is uh, resonant with me still. And then I have a uh, following that, another thought came into my mind. I'll share them both. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first image was the intensity with which I experienced the Eucharist as a young Roman Catholic boy. Mm. Um, I would go to Mass and receive the Eucharist, and I, I had an intense 
I'll just call it intensely devout relationship to what I was experiencing. Um, it wasn't people necessarily by uh, divine persons, but I, I felt something intensely. And that's the first thing that came to me. Um, the second is when I was up, I'm going to say seven, eight. Yeah. I, uh, I slept, I, I'm from a large family, as you know, from reading the book. And I slept in, uh, I had five brothers and I slept in a bedroom with, there were three of us and I was the oldest of the three. And I read for, since I was a little boy, I would read by flashlight in bed because we turned the lights out, my God, before it was dark outside. Um, and I would, uh, when I turn off the flashlight, I would have these, um, awarenesses. I knew I knew things. I didn't know how I knew things, and I didn't even ask how I know these things. That's an adult question I would ask that child. And I knew that what I knew could not be shared. It, it wasn't uh, apprehensions or clairvoyance. It was, uh, but I knew things about life, about my family, about the divine. That gave me an assurity that was very comforting and uh, lonely-making. I felt very alone with this and in this. Um, and I did not speak to anyone about it, uh, even in my many years in the Jesuits. But it's something I talked about. Writing this book, and you may have this experience talking to other authors, the things you write about, the things I wrote about, I was required to feel again, which amazed me about that. And I've written for years. I've written a lot. But the, the act of writing my memoir, or as you say, an extended autobiography, I had to feel, again, the feelings that were attached to the events, even though in thinking about writing the events, I would not understand I was going to feel the feelings again. But this is a feeling I had very strongly. And the preface to the introduction, I use a quote from Jung about that, that has a similar tone to it. He knew he knew things. And he knew he couldn't talk to anyone about what he knew and that that has carried him through his life. I would say that's carried me through my whole life to now in my advanced age. That, that is still true. I feel uh, I'm invited to be aware of things, mainly people. Uh, and it's been a gift and a burden um, my whole life. And I write about that to some extent in the book. It's a very big feature of my relationship with my dad. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I um, uh, the question that comes into my mind, and it came into my mind when you discussed this in the book, but even more so just now, as you spoke, the thing that comes into my mind uh, as a question is, did you know that you wouldn't or couldn't discuss this with others because language would be inadequate to express um, what you knew you knew? Or was it um, because you knew or interpreted interpolated that it it would not be understood by others, and that's what set you apart as being alone in this regard? I, I think it contains aspects of both. Okay, uh, words were secondary, and I knew I would not be understood, and not only not be understood, but be uh, questioned or. Derided is too strong a word, but that I would be, I would be dismissed. 
Hmm. Um, and I partially because I did not have words that I could communicate with the people, especially older than me, who I would have believed ought have some words attached to experiences like this. Mm-hmm. As you know, uh, uh, Rod, growing up in the Roman church, uh, the issue of authority, which is a big issue in my book, the issue of authority is an enormous one. And you are not authorized to know what you know unless you, that has been approbated for you or uh, over against a, a priest or a person in some authority. So these knowings were connected with my spiritual life. They were not totally spiritual in tone. Um, I'll extend this a bit. You can cut me off if you want to get to this later. But when I I read Sylvia Brennan Pereira, who's a Jungian analyst of immense wisdom in my mind, she wrote a book called The Scapegoat Complex 30, 35 years ago. She still teaches. She teaches in Ireland every year, although she's an American. In reading her, it, it was as if the whole she had interviewed me, and that was the whole book was interviewing me. She knew exactly what I had experienced, and she put it in words that could have come out of my own mouth had I had the wisdom that she had over her accumulated career as an analyst. So it was very comforting me and, and liberating when I first read The Scapegoat Complex. Who gave that book to me? I have no idea. I, I don't know how I found it, but it, it's been a seminal book in my life, and it is seminal because it confirms what I knew as a four, five, six, seven-year-old. Um, and it, she puts into words, they're almost scalding in, in their clarity. I, I'm like, I couldn't really be that clear with people because the people just can't handle that kind of clarity. But luckily I found her and I can handle her clarity and I think she could handle mine. Thank you. Yeah. So, so then with this kind of, this undercurrent or this experience, um, Maybe you can just kind of walk us forward into how this um, began to flower into a dedication to a life of spirit in various forms. I mean, it, it, there, and we can talk about that as we can go along. But um, you know, the the spiritual connection seems to be the driver, the thread that runs very deeply through the the uh, entire book. Yeah, it runs through my whole life, and. You know, I'm 74. It's not altogether clear to me yet. The, the whys, uh, the hows are more clear to me. That's are pretty clear. Um, the suchness of it is clear. Uh, it began when I, I, I was what you'd probably call a pious kid. Now, piety is a word we don't use much anymore, and it's kind of a, you put it in quotations if you're going to put it in a book, like, oh, that, he's pious. But it in the 50s, it was a common term to describe someone who was devout and intent on their devotions. And I was. And I don't know all the reasons for that. I was raised in a devout household, but not it was not a, a crazy devout household. It wasn't. We're just we were like so many other Irish Catholic families, other just Catholic families. But I had something. I'll just say I had something going with with the divine that is still obscure. Um, the Eucharist was a big piece of it. And my conversations, I use the word divine now because the word God is so laden and, and problematic, especially for LGBTQ people. It's just a, it's a hard word. It can be an onerous word. Um, but the divine seems to me to be 
distant enough. So I had a conversation going with the divine, particularly in the person of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I, I don't know fully what that means. Um, I know I live in a skeptical world. Uh, we live in a skeptical world. Trying to use language like that, especially in the kind of leftist intellectual culture that I've been in since I was a boy. People are like, well, are you some kind of a freak? No, I'm not. Actually, I'm just a guy just on my journey. But it includes this person, Jesus, deeply and always has uh, or almost always has. And it's been driven by that conversation I've been having with whatever that is in me. A, a notion I have, a sense I have, a grace I've been given, a, an awareness I have. I don't know. You could say, well, Bill, it, it sounds bogus to me. I say, I appreciate that. And nonetheless, it's been vivified for me my whole life. Uh, I'm an intellectual skeptic myself in many ways, and I hold opinions and that are contrary to mainstream Christianity in many ways. Um, and yet, yet this, this person persists in my heart, psyche, gut, life, and I would say uh, around my life as well on the in kind of a cosmological sense. So I feel I'm kind of running on now. You can refer. Oh, oh, let me, yeah, let me uh, maybe ask around that. When you, when you, as you're describing this, are you describing a, what I'd call a very deep interior knowing, like you describe as a child that, and that knowing has, itself has a kind of a sourceness that uh, as you describe, you can kind of, continue to go back to or be in conversation with. And I contrast that with a exteriorization, which is like, there's something out there to go to. Um, uh, and some people frame things in that way that, uh, uh, particularly when they're feeling separated from that, that there's, there's something outside of themselves that they're trying to re reconnect with. So of the, maybe it's both, but I'm just trying to get a sense, uh, you know, kind of in these broader terms, how, how you configure this. I wish I could tell you more clearly. Um, I experienced it lived out in the world. So I, I have an interior life. I have a, a kind of a ritualized interior life and a non-ritualized interior life, but I really experienced it living out in the world um, in a life of service, um, a particular kind of service. And I'm not sure this is what you're looking for in your question, yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me be clear because it's it's not so much how you express uh, as much as uh, where 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 the conversation is being held, in a sense, uh, because you described a knowing and a person and a uh, uh, and and language is hard here, but 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 there's a how would I put it? Uh, there's a there's a sense with I. Uh, going entirely within, you know, deeper than the persona, deeper than the, uh, uh, you know, our limitations and things like that, that, that there's a certain something uh, that is the, you know, intimacy squared or the most intimate of the most intimate that sometimes can be configured as uh, the source of the divine. And there are other ways in which, we can also exteriorize that and look at the world and uh, see the beauty of the world and the uh, aliveness of the world and, and put it out there. And maybe I'm kind of running on too here because I'm, I'm, but I'm just trying to maybe put into words 
what I'm hearing and also what I'm intuiting in my own experience and seeing if that resonates or, if it, or maybe, maybe not. This is the direction I'll take it. And you can, again, cut me off whenever you think I'm. Uh, you, you undoubtedly know the, the name, if not the work of Teilhard de Chardin, who was a French Jesuit, paleontologist, cosmologist. <clears throat> I have been studying for 50 years plus. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite on his, uh, his intellectual power was profound, but I can ac- access most of him and his thinking. And he understood the divine is really present in the stuff of the universe. And he understood this with a clarity that is quite remarkable. Um, he, he spent his life, as you know, a lot of his life in the Gobi Desert. Uh, he discovered Peking Man, as it used to be called. It would probably call it Beijing Man now, but one of the um, original, intact, uh, prehistoric. Uh, Homo, erect- Homo erectus is the term. Homo erectus. I love that. It's so, <laughs> so many levels. Um, he began to see in the desert. He began to... You know, as an archaeologist, you probably know him well, Rob, with your own background. Um, He began to understand the divine was powerfully present in rock, in sand. Uh, He understood the Big Bang before we talked about it as the Big Bang. He understood the emanation of the divine coming into the universe, into stuff, into the stuffness of life. And uh, I apprehend that and, and I take delight and I also get hope from that. Uh, as I despair of the world, I get hope in knowing that the divine that exists in my head, and I appreciate it's it's deeper than my head, but it exists here. I also experience this being present in the world, mm-hmm. profoundly in nature, but beyond nature. I'm not a cosmologist, and I'm not an astronomer. I wish I had taken astronomy as a undergrad. I'm very drawn to the stars. And partially because the, the immensity of the universe that I read about and care about, I appreciate as a manifestation of something that we can't quite grasp, but that comes into me as uh, the beauty, the wisdom, the intricacy, the, the elegance of the divine. So the person who lives in my head and that elegant creator, they're one, but I can't syllabicate out how that works. I, I, it's, I would say again, and I'll use the word in quote in italics. I, I know that, but I can't, I, I don't worry about trying to prove any of this. I, I gave that up a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, is that, is that closer to your question? It, 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 I mean, we're, we're kind of talking around something that, uh, it doesn't have a, uh, particular endpoint really. Uh, uh, but a, a, a question came up because this comes, very deeply throughout the book as well as you, you, you talked about the person of the, in your head. And I'm also interested in the, how you configure or, or relate to uh, the notion of the person in the heart. And is the same different? Do you mean it as the same or is there a distinction that uh, is worth? I don't exploring? mean it as the same. And I thank you for that. Asking for that distinction. When I say it in my head, I, I'm saying that kind of in our conversation, but it isn't primarily in my head. It, it is primarily in two other parts of my body and maybe three. My heart, but my gut is a big part of this. Um, if you know the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 1, a Sufi 1, and 
we live out of our gut. So I'm, I'm experiencing this out of my gut and I have out of the, the gut heart connection all my life. I, because I was a Jesuit and Jesuits, as you know, are way overtrained intellectually, way, way, way too much. I, I spent so many years in graduate school. It's like, really? Is this all we're going to do? I mean, but I got a tremendous education out of it and they really took my muddled brain or mind and worked with it to make it work pretty well. But it's not where I live my faith life. It's where I live my neurotic life and my obsessive compulsive life and my many personae. But this thing I'm talking about with you and that I wrote this book as a result of was what happens. I say this to clients all the time, especially men. I say, you have this little, this little word processor here called the brain. It's of little limited value. Okay. The value is from the Adam's apple to the crotch. Everything you need to know is down in here. And they'd look at me, highly educated men, and go, what are you talking about? I go, that's the work is what I'm talking about. And we'll find out. This is hard to put into words. This is not so hard to put into words. But this is where the divine lives in me and lives in me. And I say that truly. So let let me go back to your your youth because – um, I was just uh, reflecting on uh, reading those earlier chapters in the book and, and realizing that it seemed as if you felt an inevitability to the way that your life unfolded in, 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 in the early years. Something that you, especially at, in, in very young, when, you, when there, was, there were health crises in your family and you couldn't even live with your parents for, 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 you know, for, for a young child, a long time. And then after that, the, the exteriorization of your experience working with what you were describing earlier about this knowingness, but then following, following the plan that, that, um, your parents and your uh, social contexts provided for you. So, so a lot in a lot of ways, this book it seems to me is a is this opportunity, as you were talking about earlier, to re-experience the feelings that were present. Am, am I am I right in inferring that that there was a sense of inevitability? that you had little control over in much of, in much of those early years. Is that, is that, is that, or am I projecting that? I don't think you're projecting it. And um, inevitability and lack of control are a little in con- in conflict in my mind. There's, mm. a, there's a, looking back, uh, my life seems not preordained. I'm not a Presbyterian thinking there's predestination going on here. Uh, there's a path that is, startlingly clear to me that goes back to when I was three or four years old to how I am now. What kind of control over that did I have? Um, Some, a lot, less. I'm fascinated looking back on my, and you know, my, my sexuality and the shrouded nature of that in the world, in myself, in the church, in the family is a part of this because my uh, career path, my vocational path, was partially designed to manage my sexuality. 
to um, uh, expiate my sexuality in the eyes of the divine and not the, the divine I'm talking about having this conversation with. It's my, my notion of the divine was bifurcated. There was the, there was, a, I call him the fucker God. And he, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, I'm here in his hand and he's like this with his thumb going, you feeling it now, you little brat? And that fucker God existed in me at the same time. This person I identified with Jesus exists. They were not connected mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> um, and the fucker God existed because it was the God that the, a lot of the church preached, but it was also, in some ways, my search for a father. My father mm-hmm. didn't parent me. He didn't father me. And that is also connected up in my sexuality. Um, it's no surprise to me I'm gay. It's like, oh, uh, this was your path, brother. I mean, it was your path from early on because some of the archetypal qualities of being gay are connected deeply to my spirituality. Um, I actually think homosexuality is a invitational spiritual path. I don't think we know the full meaning of it yet, but I believe that. You guys have probably done a lot of thinking about this. I read your book, God is Gay, what? 30 years ago, maybe, maybe more. That, that was in a, a different light. I remember being in a different light and pulling that off the shelf and going, oh, my God, who, who are these people? But you, you've given thought to that. I have, too. Um, so there's been an inevitability in my path. I, I look at the tracings of being in the Jesuits, leaving the Jesuits, and it's like I left the Jesuits on one day, and the next day the AIDS epidemic hit. It was like... I was ready. I had been given all the tools and finally came out of the closet. And my life subsequently, the last 45 years, it's all of a piece. I didn't know this as I was living it, but looking back, inevitable, perhaps, grace, perhaps, um, uh, a series of critical choices that a deeper part of me that I can identify made, I think. But Well... Well, you 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 remind me of the of um, your description in your book of of the moment it, the last step before ordination as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and um, in a sense, maybe given your makeup, uh, your predilections. This was, there was an inevitability of coming to that point. But then at that point, there was, there was a choice made that did not conform to the earlier sense of inevitability. Now, you know, I, I, I want to be clear as well that uh, for listeners that, that description leading up to, because this was in your late twenties, I, I, I think. Is that, yeah. So, um, so the description of what you were experiencing throughout the 20s, when by uh, the world standards, you're a man uh, responsible for yourself. But it, I, I think that moment when you couldn't continue, as you, as you describe it, the path that you had been um, long trained and had chosen to train in. Um, 
that's a uh, that's a really interesting kind of moment in a person's life because you could have gone either way it seems it seems to me and if you'd gone through the through with the ordination from everything you write about it, it would have led to a deeply unhappy existence and um and you didn't so so you found a way to use you know looking then into the next chapters of your life to use all this as you as you were des- uh, describing your your response to the aids epidemic and 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 more so um so that's where the inevitability ends it seems to me and um our 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 listeners can't hear you but i can see you nodding on the screen here and so i want you if i invite you to speak a little bit more about that I and not my not my words but your words uh <clears throat> I have a little trope I use in my life, and it's based on the, the year that ends with 8, 48, 58, 68, 78, 88, and on. I was born in 48. Every 10 years, I have had a, uh, an explosive year. 68, I quit college to work against the Vietnam War and was deeply involved in peace politics. And it changed my life. I became a citizen of the world that year. Dr. King had a role in this. Gene McCarthy had a role, but it was really a pivotal year in my life. And I became a citizen of the world. I was no longer a Nebraskan. I was in the world and it shaped me. But in 78, as I say in the book, I got sober on Labor Day, 1978. It wasn't a choice. I, I was, I call it a gift. I was given a gift. I heard the words, you never have to drink again. I was what we call a mid-stage alcoholic. I was a daily maintenance drinker, but I didn't miss work. I was a teacher in a Jesuit high school. I mean, I was in a culture in which drinking was, but it was a big, it was a pivotal moment in my life. A month later, I went to the Civic Center in San Francisco and Harvey Milk gave his standard canned, beautiful speech that he gave, that uh, Sean Penn gave in the, the, the film, Milk. And it undid me. I went home and I said for the first time in my life, I was 20, I was going to be 30 in a week. I am a gay man. I couldn't say those words. I knew it since I was a boy. It was deeply when I was a boy. And then seven months later, when I was going to write my letter, required letter to Rome to get permission to be ordained, which I had every intention until when I put the piece of paper in my selectric, I had every intention of writing that letter. I couldn't write it. I didn't know that 30 seconds before. And I knew it with a clarity, the same kind of clarity when I said I'm a gay man or that you don't have to drink anymore. The clarity was astounding, alarming, vivifying. I have a, uh, a question about that because what you say subsequent or what leading up to that, even in that context, you were coming out even to your Jesuit community. I came out to the everyone, right? And and it's it just it's interesting. I I guess the understanding enlightened for the uh, Catholic Church, but the understanding of that community, if I'm not mistaken, is 
you can be gay, but you would still be celibate as a, uh, a priest, right? I mean, at, at, that, at that time, it was a, uh, there were a couple of added layers. You could be gay because you could not not be who you are, but you couldn't say who you are. Ah, yes. You could say it in every part of your life, except for this, as you know deeply, this deeply centering part of your life, the source of incredible energy. You couldn't acknowledge the source of a deep part of your life. So you could you could say to your brothers, and I, I mean, everyone knew I was gay on the campus of the G2 that year. I'll tell you, I was on fire. But the, the tacit understanding was, if we give you permission to be ordained, you will not acknowledge this publicly. You could say it in community. There were so many men in similar situations in the community I was living in. But I was the only one who was saying these, these words. The word gay could not have been more provocative in 1978 in the Roman Catholic Church. than I mean, John McNeil, the famous Jesuit who was kicked out of the order and lost his priesthood when he wrote The Church on the Homosexual. He didn't even say the word gay. He said the medical word homosexual. And he was, so I knew that in a way that I both appreciated and felt condescended to at the same time. We want you to be a priest, but you can't say who you are. And my own integrity, if you know the Enneagram, ones are bullheaded, and they're, they are going to be clear if it kills them. And I was going to be clear if it killed me, and it didn't kill me. But I knew that day when I put the paper in the typewriter, I couldn't do this. I could not pretend to be anything but who I am in the world. And that has been my standard ever since. So this is interesting to me as it happens just a couple of months ago on this podcast, we interviewed um, uh, a gentleman who I think about 10 years after this moment for you that you've just, you were just describing, um, he knew he was gay. I think other people knew he was gay, but um, as he described in the podcast to us, uh, he was in uh, the uh, diocese or archdiocese, I'm not sure, of Atlanta. And he was, it was 20 minutes before the uh, ordination was so, going to So take he had place. written the letter, yeah. Uh, right. He had gone through, his family were out in the nave of the church, and the bishop says... Calls him, him into his office. No, 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 not in his office. I think it was probably in the sacristy or something like that. Anyway, um, and asked him if he was gay, knowing that it wasn't the, that the whole thing would be called off, his family having journeyed, etc. And I just, uh, and it's one of the most stunningly nasty things I think I've ever heard. Um, someone supposedly called the God to do. So, um, so I, the reason I bring this up is because my own experience of the Catholic Church is that in many ways, although I've certainly changed, that the Roman Catholic Church has changed in some ways more than I over the course of my life from being an altar boy, first learning responses in Latin, and then two years later, the responses in English. 
So, um, uh, you, and you, so you were at a kind of cusp, it seems to me, not just, not just in your own personal life, but in the, the, uh, life, if you will, of this institution. That's totally accurate. I'll go back to 68 for a second. I feel so lucky to have been in college in 1968, which was this pivotal year in American social life. Mm-hmm. And then to be in Berkeley, California in 1978, when the ferment in the church was like the post-Vatican II energy was taking hold, the role of women in the church was up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, gay people were finally w- willing to say, this is who I am. It, it was exciting. And yet, the strictures were still in place, and there were dark forces, as there still are. And you know, you know this from being in the culture. There are dark forces. There are many Catholic churches. <laughs> just many, many, many Catholic churches. And I'm very drawn to a, a Catholic church, but it's not the Catholic church as it constitutes itself. And the way it constitutes itself is a big part of the problem. So it's you can you can be drawn to a, a one of the many Catholic churches, and yet that Catholic church too is under the thumb. Well, I, I'm glad you bring this up because one of the one of the phrases I don't recall encountering in your book is one that I always that I've continued to find uh, of interest, and that is the mystical body of the church is the mystical body of Christ, and. Um, and you don't use that phrase in the book. At least I, I don't recall encountering it. But what is that? I mean, how? given that you just said there are many Catholic churches, um, since we're there, why don't you elaborate on that just a little bit more, if you will? When I left the Jesuits, I worshipped uh, at the Newman Center at the University of California, Berkeley, which was a very liberal, the Paulist Fathers, who were an American-ordered, focusing on popular American culture, working with Americans on Americans' terms. It was a wonderful place to worship. But in my 10 years worshiping there, I was very involved in the AIDS epidemic. There was never mention of AIDS in the church. And I'm like, my whole week is spent working in the AIDS epidemic, and I'd go to church and with all these wonderful liberal people, and I was like, so every Sunday at the end of the prayers, I would say for people living and dying with AIDS. And it was like, Excuse me, kids, is there anyone else here who has this consciousness? So I was in my car on, on Folsom Street, which I love the, 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 you know, as Jung taught me, everything is synchronous. I was on Folsom Street in my car on the feast day of St. Ignatius Loyola, who's the founder of the Jesuits, to make it more synchronous for me. <clears throat> Ten years out, and I, I hear a lot of words in my life. You could analyze those. If you're a psychoanalyst, you can put me away, but... The words were, you can't stay in the shadow of the church any longer. Meaning you're paying a psychological price, brother, for staying in the shadow. It's a shadow. The shadow has some light coming out of it, but it's a shadow, and it's infecting you. It's keeping you from being the man you're called to be. That was a, that was a Catholic church I belonged to, and I don't mean parish. I mean, that was a wing of the Catholic church that I, I loved. I still support many Catholic organizations that serve the poor and try to work within the church for justice. But I'm not naive as to the task at hand for them. Some people are called to do that. I am not called to do that. I, 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 
I sometimes wish I were. I admire my Jesuit brothers who are in some of the vital trenches at the border, for instance, working with uh, undocumented. But this issue of sexuality, as you know deeply, it overrides so much in the Roman Church. It overrides so much in Christianity. And I have to approach it with my skill and my gifts and my passions as to how I speak to that. I'm very involved at the Graduate Theological Union to this day, as you know. If you ask people on the board, well, what is, what is Bill? They go, no, not exactly sure what Bill is. I know he loves this work, and I do. I love interreligious work, and I love spirituality of all kinds. But my identification with the church is a very hard part of my life. In the book, I say I'm a complicated Catholic. I used to say I was a diaspora Catholic. I used to say I was a Catholic outside the walls. I've tried all kinds of nomenclature to capture it. I'm a small C Catholic, often worship with uh, Anglicans who call themselves Catholics. I get it. There are Catholics who are obsessed with sexuality. They were at one point in their history, but they decided 40 years ago, oh, my God, girl, we got to work through through this because it is a hornet's nest of darkness. Now I'm really going on, so please refocus. Well, I mean, it, oh, I'm enjoying it. it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's just interesting to me. Uh, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't really understand it because in some ways uh, for it, the church as an institute, it seems like if anything, it's become more crystallized around this uh, 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 sex negative uh, view. I think, also in America, certainly the abortion issues become one of these sort of crystallization um, factors as well and, and birth control and all this, but it's all tied to sex negative uh, ideation. And it just, it boggles me sometimes, like if you just took that away, you know, if you, if you just remove that uh, and open the doors, there'd be some, uh, the, the power of the church would be so much more vitalized because there'd be so many more people who would feel uh, inclusive in it and it's it's an odd thing I guess the it almost feels as though the institution cons, cons, construes itself as under threat by modernism and is uh, you know as the Europeans all fall away in fact in the book you have this interesting uh, image that struck me about the uh, uh, the church you were in, in in Paris where it's like the most of the congregation are Senegalese and the uh, uh, most of the priests are Senegalese. And it's, it's like that institution probably feels like uh, uh, modernism construed as the Western democracies are probably uh, attacking it. And, and so maybe, maybe this is just a, a reactionary kind of uh, thing that's come up with the, uh, with the institution, but, the answer seems so simple and yet so elusive. My own in insight into this is that the sex negative aspect of the church is deeply based in misogyny. Mm. My instinct is that homophobia is basically de de based, deeply based in misogyny. It's the fear and need to control the feminine, whether the feminine be in women, which it typically is, or in men like us, I would say, who have access to the feminine. That if 
And this is what I think the Episcopalians have understood for the past 40 years. When they started ordaining women back in the late 70s and they ordained a women bishop, the game was over. It was over. For the whole, you know, there's Anglicans, uh, Sub Saharan Africa, who are to the right of Attila, but it's <laughs> over. And it's because once that power is eliminated as an element of control over women, over the feminine, it's really more than women, it's the feminine. The spirit can flower. And your insight as a steward is, I think, spot on. If you, if you could suck out power, hierarchical power, masculine power, false masculine power, toxic masculine power from the Roman church, the good the church could do in the world is endless because it does a lot of good already. But it would be endless. Yeah. That's, that, that, that just uh, actually... It's kind of interesting because uh, uh, something that came up in the uh, last chapter of your uh, memoir struck me because it resonated with the conversation that uh, we've had with a, a friend of ours uh, who's a Tibetan teacher, a, a Westerner, but you know, studied in the Tibetan and taught in the t- Tibetan tradition. And as we talk about uh, where mysticism finds its roots or where, where it finds its expression in society. He, you know, he would say it's always at the margins. And I, then I was reading your words and you said exactly the same thing. And, um, uh, and what you describe even throughout the, the, the work with the uh, AIDS crisis and uh, the, um, during the eighties and nineties in particular, spirituality was finding its expression and the mysticism was finding it expression in these marginal situations, just like the work you describe, uh, which we'll probably get to a little bit uh, in San Quentin. It's like the true flowering seems to be at the margins. And, and it may be the case that it's hard for an institution that's uh, uh, maintaining institutional power to be an effective container for something that by its nature flowers in the margins. I think that's why the institutional power has increased in the last 30 years, because there's an intuitive knowing that there's something going on at the margins that is threatening because it's going on in the margins all over the world, not just in Catholicism. And it's the part of Catholicism. I love that's what's going on in the margins. I identify with it. It has a, a, a hold on my soul. And I think the crisis the church is in is because the hierarch, they get that, and their power is being diminished. Thank God. There's a, we're, we're in a, you know, I'm not an Aquarian. I remember back in 16, I was like, oh, the age of Aquarius. I'm not like that. But I think, and Teilhard saw this, I think, with a clarity as a cosmologist and scientist. We're on the, and we know this living in the culture, we're, we're on the cusp of enormous changes in the way human beings live on the planet, if we can get, if we can survive the crisis we've created in the environment, the movement of freedom of peoples, which to me is a deeply spiritual movement, is changing the world, changing the United States. It's why the, the right wing Christian nationalists are so afraid because their, their hegemony is being diminished on a daily basis. I mean, those people are dying faster than we are. So it's like, you know, the power is diminishing and it makes them more rabid. And I say that almost with care and respect for them because they haven't been given the opportunities. I, I, I could have been a rabid Roman Catholic nationalist. 
I'm not because of people who said to me, become a human being, Bill. Let's, let's be a human being. I go, what kind of talk is that? Well, we'll show you. Pay attention. But can I take a two-minute break? Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll take advantage of that myself. I promise I'll <laughs> my, come back. My, my, uh, my small um, bladder. <laughs> All right. Go for it. All right. So uh, I, I'd like to uh, change topical direction for a moment here and um, and ask you about the the role of ritual in spiritual life, because God knows um, my own experience uh, of the spiritual endeavor. Um, I've come, I've come, especially in recent years, to more and more deeply appreciate the role, the utility of ritual. And I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, for a brief uh, summary, uh, my my first experience that I, that I would call uh, numinous was when I was either three or four years old in a Catholic church. Um, the particular architecture of this church I attended was, um, I mean, my family attended, was that there was to the immediate right, um, looking into the nave from the sanctuary, to the immediate right was a Mary chapel. But it had this feature of a sliding glass wall that would come down. So this is where all the Mothersworth kids were, uh, would be um, allowed to be. So I was young. My mother brought me, I think my father and brother did not attend this particular mass, but it was an ordination mass as it, as it happened. So it was a, a, this would have been in the 50s and a super duper high mass. And um and at some point in that in my experience of observing that i identified and saw an energy rising up in a way that um was extraordinary of course i could never exp- um, describe it but it it was happening in that particular context but then after um, I basically stopped attending uh, the church and explored other modalities and then became a, uh, a practitioner of the fourth way, I kind of set ritual aside, imagining that, that the bare bones of it were a container, but not much in the ritual itself. But then in, in the last uh, couple of decades, I suppose, I've come back around to see utilities that I did not uh, suspect before, the existence of ways of creating a context for people to connect with the divine um, can be uh, facilitated through ritual. And, uh, you know, part of that... Part of that even is uh, some of the work with uh, our a dear Native American friend and 
a, a woman who a, a woman who has been seeing angels since, since she was one and a half, she says. But not just her. So I'm wondering, um, I mean, you certainly bring up your own self-created rituals, if you will, in certain parts of I came here seeking a person, a vital story of grace, one gay man's spiritual journey. I, I didn't say the whole title uh, before. So, um, um, but I'm wondering if you have any views on um, the role of ritual in the spiritual life, not just for yourself, but for others. Uh, I've actually given this question a lot of thought in the last 25 years. I actually think we, I, I just like to start when we're 50, because then we have something to build on and we can start applying. But anyway, here we are. Uh, and uh, these these thoughts, you know, I happen to be raised in a certain culture at a certain time, I'm of a certain gender, a certain. but I, I think these truths of ritual are universal. One of the graces of being at the GTU is we're, we're a community. Uh, every world religion is present on campus, and we're in a dialogue. It's, it's really quite marvelous. And the Eastern religions, they, they all have profound ritual attached to their understanding of sacred time and space and movement, movement inside and movement outside. The, the greatest gift Catholicism gave me was it raised me in ritual, and the rituals were very significant to me, and in many ways still are. I spoke in the book, Stuart, you mentioned this, a St. Sulpice in Paris is an enormous, second biggest church in France. It's an enormous church. Probably has 30 side altars, as well as the enormous main altar. And in this one little side altar are these Africans and me when I'm there. And I go for the ritual, I, and I go because I don't speak French, so I don't listen to the things that are being said. I go there because I am encased in the ritual, and the ritual heals me, opens me up, deepens me. In the United States, if I can find a Jesuit parish to worship in, I worship there. Otherwise, I worship with the Episcopalians, who, who are deeply committed to understanding that they they understand are deeply committed to using ritual to enhance people's full body, psyche, heart, soul, gut, genitals, full body in the act of trying to understand our relationship to the divine, to the cosmos. It's indispensable to me. And here's why I think it's indispensable. I look at Christian nationalism. These religions are devoid of ritual. They're devoid of ritual. They have a pop band on the stage with the preacher who has something to sell. There's no sense of clothing or color or motif. It's as secular and banal as a shopping center because they're often located in shopping centers. They rely totally on word. Word has a limitation. It's valuable, but it's limited. There's no sacrament in any sense of the word sacrament, meaning there's no there's no symbolic transference of our relationship from ourselves to the community, to the divine, which there is in Eastern religions. There are in tribal religions, whether you're in Africa or in Siberia or Native Americans. Ritual was, it, it was critical to worship. 
It is cohesive for the community. It gave people a sense of meaning and purpose. So I, I, I'll go to San Quentin just briefly. The man in San Quentin I worked with, who I came to love and love, they were raised in abject circumstances. No ritual at all. Not the ritual of family meals. Not the ritual of tucking into bed and saying evening prayers. Not the ritual of waking up together. They were raised in abject circumstances. And they found gangs. And one of the reasons gangs work so well is they're highly rich. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows who everyone else is in the gang, what your role is. And to become part of the game, you go, gang, you go through a ritual, a manhood ritual, if you will, an initiation ritual. These kids starve this. And when they complete the ritual, they feel they belong. And they'll do anything for that gang. They'll live with that mentality that we are somebody. Well, unfortunately, in, in gangland, it often is accompanied by crime. But it, it, it's okay that it is for the men because they belong. And the ritual coheres them, sharing blood together, coheres them to each other and to the world which is telling them you are nothing, you are meaningless. So I think ritual is vital, and I really appreciate this question, um, Rob. There's a book I have, which I've had for 20 years. It's called Stop Dumbing Down the Ritual, meaning you're going to create ritual. Don't dumb it down. Don't try to ha- – don't, don't go to a shopping center and – get a pop band and, you know, think it through. What does it mean to ritualize our lives? Not just in the in our deeply spiritual lives, but in all of our lives. Why do we have birthday parties? Why do we celebrate the holidays, whether we're Christian or not? What do all these things mean? Why do we do, why are we so connected to these rituals? Because they give us meaning and they connect us to each other and something greater well, that last let, let me just point to that very last phrase, because, you know, having um, studied the anthropology of religion, um, that f- first part of the phrase connect to e- us to each other is is uh, an epigram of the anthropology of religion. And, uh, of course, f- from from the Western uh viewpoint there is no connection to something greater because that's not what the formulation of the field accepted as legitimate uh, for study but um but to me that's the that's the key thing Stuart has begun um training um and i'll 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 let him talk about it for a moment uh, as an example of Here's here's a boy who was raised, I guess, uh, in early years. I'm not sure exactly what Christian um, uh, church he was. Episcopalian, but uh, well, Episcopalian now because I've been to a lot of uh, services with your mother and yeah. Whatnot. But it was a. I mean, when we were in Canada, it was Anglican, but it was it was still right. Episcopalian. And but I was my brother was confirmed, but I, by the time I'm the youngest, so by the time. Um, uh, confirmation would come around as an option. My parents were kind of not falling away, but we, we, what I'd call special occasion Christians at that point, you know, cap Chris, you know, but describe, but describe not that, yeah, so, so, but, but what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So what, what Rob's describing is, um, I've been working with a friend of ours who's 
a diviner in the um, uh, West African Dagara divination tradition that Maladoma Some uh, uh, kind of opened up in the West. Uh, she's a Western person, but she, I think, a couple steps back, her teacher was Maladoma, his uh, sister. But this, this, the Dagra tradition is interesting because it's very ritual focused, and rituals are used as a healing modality. So in the in the divination process, which is not unlike, but uh, very characteristically different than what you've described in the book of sometimes sitting with your uh, your friend, uh, your intuitive friend uh, Laura, you know, where, where Laura would go into like a ten minute, you know, look uh, of what of the space. The diviner is doing that only with through um, uh, the mediation of a number of different power objects that are part of the kit that the diviner has. But out of that comes uh, prescriptions for uh, rituals to deal with, you might say, broken lines of energy where there's withholds, there's disconnections, there's relationships that have fallen down. And uh, so ritual becomes this active modality of uh, rebalancing energy. And it's vital and it's very nature oriented in the sense that you're, you know, nature participates so much in the uh, rituals. And what I found in doing this and training in this is that um, it's from a mental point of view, it's like giving, you know, I can give away my mind, you know, and let the body do the work and also know that, that something beyond me is doing the uh, healing, that I don't have to own that. It's, it's, it's out of my hands in a sense. And that, that sense of connecting to something larger than ourselves or something beyond ourselves is very rich in that tradition. So that's that's something that is work that I've certainly been doing for the last few years that's different than what um, I'd call the psychological work of the fourth way is about. There's corollaries to that, I think, in, in many other uh, paths. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ultimately, it's one of the joys of the GTU. I'm not a... I'm not a person who says there's, I took a course in Buddhist Christian understanding about 20 years ago and they were so both of we're so we're not, we're never going to be the same. I go, okay, we're never going to be the same. And I know that, but at the heart of every tradition that I've encountered, which I've had experience, I've had the gift of encountering so many, there's, there are these same truths. And I don't mean intellectual truths. They're the same intuitive truths that we have different approaches to try to get at because we sense it. I really believe we sense it. And ritual is a way of making the sense available to the community. First of all, to ourselves, I have ritual every morning with myself. And there, I have a ritualist altar. And, but if I were alone on the planet, would I still have that? Probably. But I would really be hungry for the connectivity of others who also are understanding what, my, what rituals are doing for us and to us. So, um, just to just to elaborate a little further on that, the, one of the things that um, both the Native American um, centered work we've accessed in recent years, and also this um, uh, West African tradition that Stuart was just describing his experience with, is the um, in in being instructed to go to do a certain ritual, 
we have found, if you will, extraordinary experiences that cannot be explained by any um, by any scientific principle. It's like someone it, takes the veil of reality and kind of whips it. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it, and it's, a ripple goes across the the phenomenal world, and you realize there's something behind the curtain. You oh. know, a, a scientist would would you know a, 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 a committed scientific um, materialist would would basically dismiss what uh, we've experienced as coincidence. But it's so, so unlikely, so incredible um, that um, it's, it's helped me. And, you know, I was, I went to grad school for, you know, many years in a, in a context that only accepted a sort of scientific materialist view. But it's helped me to realize that that's all true insofar as it goes, but there's a much larger context. So that's why I connected to that phrase, the bigger context that you used uh, earlier. That, that to me, the, the willingness to open to the reality of that, that I don't understand and will never fully understand while I'm in this body, um, I think is, is, is something that is, that is emerging as you were, as you were saying earlier. Um, and I think that's, that's an important part of, um, one of the things that, that I think comes through in, at, at moments in your book. The three great teachers that I've had, none of whom I met, of course, Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk who, who died the most, uh, magnificently weird death. In- <laughs> But he finally got to meet his his soulmate, the Dalai Lama, who was a boy. At, I mean, this is 50 years ago, and the Dalai Lama is still, you know, toting around. Teilhard de Chardin, who I don't know if he would even liked Merton, but and Carl Jung. Carl Jung is a. I mean, the three of them pushed me to appreciate this deeply in my own life and in the life of the world. Every, all the language we use today, all the concepts I use, that's what they are. They're trying to intimate something that I can't put into words or I can't fully understand, but that I sense at the deepest level. My favorite word for the divine that I use a lot is presence. Mm-hmm. And when we are in presence, it's undeniable. There was a, a Episcopal priest, MD, psychiatrist. His name is Ralph Harper. He taught at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He wrote a book 40 years ago called On Presence. I read his obit in the Times 35 years ago, and it talked about this book, and just the words jumped out at me, so I got it that day. It was before Amazon, so I probably had to order it from my bookstore and many rivers, but you weren't open yet, so I couldn't call you and order it there. I forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) When I read this book by Ralph Harper, it's like reading The Scapegoat Complex. It I felt Ralph Harper and I were having a conversation that he understood. And he, he was very bright, trained, medically trained, but he was deeply intuitive. He, he understood that at, at the end of the day, this is what we sit in awe of presence. And we have tens of thousands of religious ways, spiritual ways to, to be present to presence. 
We have languages, scientific materialism, which denies it. Most many other languages, which open it to us. They're just they're just languages. It's deeper in us. It's it's deeper in us. All the things I've been part of and all the things I've rejected. They're an attempt to get clear, get get clear through to presence. And ritual helps that enormously for me. It helps me present so that I can be in the midst of presence. So the, the, uh, this, this question of presence is an interesting one. The, in the fourth way tradition, the term comes up, you know, and it comes up in ways that uh, you use in your memoir, um, you know, to be present to something, to uh, uh, be present or fully embodied is to be present to our body, our heart, our mind, not to be run by any of them. Uh, and to be present to others is a, another way of using that term. And then there's the more abstract sense of presence that, that, that numinous feeling that uh, we're within something that cares, within something that's holding us. So it's a, it's a wonderful word and it's a, it's a great mystery. I mean, in our own ritualization of our, our of our particular work, we, we um, have a prayer of presence that figures as part of uh, uh things that we may, we may chant or sing as part of uh, uh, a ritual service or a reading for the dead or many of the different kinds of things that we do. So, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up presence because it's, 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 it's the great mystery and yet it's immediately available to the, anyone who seeks it. What a paradox that is. It's the great mystery. It is the great mystery and it's available to us and we experience it. We sense it. We, we know when we're in it, and we know when we're not, when we choose yeah. not to be. Yeah. <laughs> or we know right after when we're not in it. <laughs> <laughs> Good qualification there. So, <laughs> so I want to um, perhaps to some extent expand this discussion of uh, um, ritual and presence by bringing in a word that struck me throughout the book um, because it's not a word I use um, frequently and in fact have not um, I've had a negative connotation for which is to preach I thought you were going to say grace and I thought well I can work with grace <laughs> <laughs> oh well you're not as intuitive as you thought there <laughs> really not. I'm not intuitive all the time just but it's just when, vital. Just when you need to be. Yeah, when my no. life depends upon it, the intuitions exactly. are crystal clear. Exactly. I must feel safe with you too, because it's I'm just <laughs> just me right now. Okay. Well that's that's um that is something I deeply appreciate. So thank you for saying that. And um and it's uh I too uh feel no barriers here in this conversation. But that's but that's why I want to get to this uh, this word preach. Um, I appreciate it's a difficult word. I, I, I could use a different word. I, I don't. Um, mm -hmm. I don't mean it in the. Uh, let me not start with the negative. I don't mean it that this way. <laughs> um, what I'm doing right now with you, this isn't preaching, but 
This is the context in which I use the word. Trying to invite people to be open to the deeper truth that resides in them. By speaking my truth, the truth I have received, I'm, you know, I'm tabula rosa like everyone else. So much has been poured into me. So much has been poured into both of you. And I have formed it in a particular way, or it's been formed a particular way. Since I was, let's say, high school, I've been asked to say what I know in a variety of forums or foray. Mm -hmm. It's part of my call to the Jesuits. Knowing what I know, that this uh, knowing that I talked about very early in our hour is a piece of it. I don't know things because I am clairvoyant or particularly, I'm, I'm not brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm a plotter. The things I know have nothing to do with my intellectual life. That I can talk about them maybe have a little to do with my intellectual life. I, I could be a, a relatively D-U-M-B person and still have, know what I know. I would maybe never share it, and I think it's meant to be shared because it feels like it's all a gift to me. Daniel Berrigan, the great Jesuit peace activist, said, all is gift, all is gift. Give it away. I love that phrase so much. All is gift, Bill. Give it away, you stupid. Okay, that's the work, Bill. So <clears throat> during the epidemic, I did a lot of public speaking. And as you both know, from the early days, people died quickly. And gay boys were basically post-church. They had been kicked out of their churches or had been alienated from religion or they had been in the clutches of the fucker God. So they didn't have access to ritual, among other things. They all knew they wanted ritual, even after their. So people started asking me to bury them. And then people started asking me to marry them. And I'd say, I am not a priest. I'm not marrying you. And then they they talked to me, and, and, and Rob, you'll understand with your own background, but Stuart, you will too if you're raised Episcopal, and they started to talk to me in a confessional way, not just as a therapist. I'm not talking about my professional life. I'm to, I knew they trusted something that I had to say, <laughs> probably more than I trusted it, but I knew they did, and I felt I have to pay attention to this. And I started to preach at funerals. And what I had to say moved people. I I didn't preach from a dogmatic position in my whole life. I've never preached from a dogmatic position. But from the deeper truths that you two have been invested in for your whole lives, that I've been invested in. How are we? Who are we? What are we called to? How do we find out how to love one another? How do we find out how to love ourselves? What does it mean to be silent? What does it mean to meditate or pray? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a person? Those are the kind of questions I grapple with when I speak in public. I went to seminary when I was 50, went back to finish the Masters in Divinity. I didn't finish as a Jesuit because I didn't like it hanging out there. And I had called together a group of people who had asked me to do something ritualistic. I sent an email out and I said, if you're interested in praying together on a regular basis, come to our house. Well, 35 people showed up. 
Pretty soon it was 50 people, and we lasted seven years. I preached every week, every other week. We met every other week for seven years. By preaching, I would speak. I would take scripture from one of the world's religions, and I'd offer a reflection on it. That's what I meant by speaking. But I'd offer a reflection that was common to all these traditions, the kind of questions I just articulated a minute ago. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to trust ourselves? What does it mean to listen to the inner voice? I didn't try to say what's the source of the inner voice. I didn't, I didn't use the word God in all those years. When I graduated from seminary, they gave me the preaching award. Because the rest of them were doing what you might think of as preaching. You know, they were kind of evangelical or, you know, and I wasn't. I was saying a different word. And I've been asked subsequently for years. The little church I worship with in Santa Rosa, the, the priest who is a really a, a marvelous human being. He asked me to preach. Uh, lay people don't preach in these churches. He asked me to preach in three weeks. I said, Stephen, I'm not ordained. And he goes, uh, what, what does that have to do with my request? I'm like, don't do that to me, okay? That's a conflict. But why did he ask me? I, I, I could. I didn't ask him why. I don't ask why. It's a, it's a rude question. It's an irreverent question. I just know there's something there that he thinks is of value. So that's what I mean when I say preach. It's not, will I reference Jesus in an Episcopal church? Probably. But I don't rep- represent Jesus, the dogmatic character, caught up in the word Christ and all the uh, attributes and moments that are, they all end in T-I-O-N, Annunciation, Incarnation, eschatology. I mean, I'm not I'm trying to invite people to become human beings like I've been invited to become a human being. That's what I've been invited to do. The day I was given my sobriety, the invitation was, you are 29. It's time you became a human being. Not a, a set of attractive personae. Not a glen, not primarily a glen. A human being. It's like, what does that mean? Well, Bill, that's you'll spend the rest of your life asking, asking that question. I'm still asking that question. I'm older than both of you by far. I'm still asking the question, what does it mean for me to be true to myself and be a human being? So the divine is one way I ask that question. Psychology is another way. I ask Dr. Young. I ask my dead friends with AIDS who I still talk to 30 years, 40 years later, 35 years later. I wrote a chapter in there on my dear friend Larry uh, on Godius, the chapter on Godius. I talked to him. You see on that wall up there, there's a picture of a, a young Buddhist in Bangkok, 14 years old, and, and the, uh, the uh, photographer captured him coming out of a 28-hour meditation. He's, he's a bodhisattva. He's got the divine face. But on that, I have a bunch of pictures under that, and one of them is my friend Larry. Mm-hmm. I talk to Larry all the time. I miss him so much because he was one person who totally got me, what I'm about, what I'm doing. And he endorsed it in that chapter. You see the depth of that between us. When he says, I want you to hear my last confession, I'm going, fuck you. I'm not a priest. I'm not going to listen to your last confession. He goes, could you get over yourself for once? Your little ego tool that you are. I'm going, well, is it that bad? He goes, yeah, it's that bad. 
So that's what I mean by preaching. Yeah. Maybe, maybe exactly what you had in mind, Rob. I don't know. That is exactly what I had in mind. And um, uh, uh, I will say that that chapter really touched me because the stole, the vestment of um, associated with ordination uh, in the Catholic Church and his insistence that you take it uh, reminded me of uh, a dear friend of ours uh, was a uh, for six years was a uh, Chogye Zen monk with a, uh, a famous teacher who who came to America, but he would go back um, to Korea and Japan and and our and our friend did as well. But I went to see I went to see his teacher talk in in. Um, their uh, uh, monastic institution in Berkeley once, along with my friend and my teacher, my own teacher. We were all dear friends. And um, in this talk, the um, uh, Korean Zen master Sung San, uh, the honorific is Sun Sanim, Sun Sanim told the famous story in Buddhism of Kashyap, I'm trying to uh, massacre the Kashyapa, um, um, being given the flower by the Buddha. And when he was telling this story, uh, Sansanim mimicked handing a flower to my dear friend. So that's um, that reminded me your story about the stole being given the stole by your dying friend and um, thus would enable you to quote, hear his confession in a certain, from a certain perspective uh, uh, was very um, resonant. And, um, but all this leads me to, uh, because we only have about another 15 or 20 minutes here, I want to ask about another P word, not just preach, but pray. Pray? Pray. Not P-R-E-Y, but P-R-A-Y. <laughs> we could talk about pray, too. We, we could do. But um, uh, so when I was a kid in parochial school, praying as I understood it, was at after confession, I was supposed to say five Hail Marys and three uh, Our Fathers or, or something like that. It was, it was a um, mechanical recitation. Um, penance is actually how I think it, w- it would be a fair description. And um, take, you know, take, take some time out for your life and just do this mechanical thing. It could have been a ritual, a meaningful ritual, but that's not how I, I understood it or experienced it. In, many, in later years, I, we have a dear friend who's uh, um, uh, uh, lives in an ashram in Arizona now. Her teacher died uh, 12 years ago, I believe. And he was, the teacher was a good friend of ours. This lady who is a Catholic nun for many years, is a good friend of ours. So she's a devotee of that, of this teacher in a Hindu tradition. And she wrote a book called Praying Dangerously, 
And, um, and that opened me up to a different way to look at prayer. And reading Merton has opened me up to a different way of defining what prayer is. But I want, I'd like to hear you um, address this topic, if you will. In this book, I came out in two ways that I, with language that I don't use in the culture I live in, even in religious cultures. I never say I'm a Christian, ever. I don't say I'm a Catholic. I don't use any language. I live in a world that's similar to the worlds you live in, although you live in a more rarefied, attractive world, which people understand your language, at least. I live in a secular world. Many people find my my uh, the use of the word Jesus as quaint. It's like, oh, Bill is <laughs> <laughs> really. It's anything but quaint. And the other word I, I have used the word meditate with people for thirty years because when you say the word pray, they go. Oh, my God, he's a holy roller, or he's using the rosary beads, or, wow, I thought he was more sophisticated than that. And, of course, I want to appear to be sophisticated, but I pray. I use the word pray in this book, and I'm very clear in the last chapter. And I say at the end, I haven't spoken much about Jesus in this book. You know, 220 pages without much reference to that name or person. And in the end, I try to delve into what that means for me. So I pray every day. I was taught as a Jesuit, we prayed several times a day. We we prayed a uh, formulaic, but not dead, manner of praying. When I left the Jesuits, I, for several years, did not maintain the practice. And then in the late 80s, began it again. I go to uh, Trappist Monastery almost every year up near Portland. It's really a sterly beautiful place. And they have a Zendo. Go figure. So I spend my whole retreat, eight days in the Zendo, and I go into the chapel because it's beautiful at night for that late-night prayer the monks chant. But I spend all my time alone in Zendo because it's what I do here. I'm, by here, I mean, I point over here. I have my Zafu. I have my altar. I do... Uh, I, I do what Buddhists might call a, a form of vipassana meditation. In the in the Christian world, they have developed what they call centering prayer, yeah. which is Buddhist meditation by using the name of Jesus or something. You know, it's like it's the same thing, I mean, literally the same thing. I focus on a word or a phrase, twenty minutes, and then I speak about my concerns in the world, people I love who are suffering, the world who's suffering, places I've spent time, my friends in San Quentin, et cetera, et cetera. What do I do when I pray for them? I don't ask for an intervention. I don't ask for my, I have a very close friend who called me two days ago to say he has stage four cancer out of the blue. I don't pray that he have that intervened on. I don't believe in that kind of a deity. But I offer his name up to the ether, to the cosmos, to the gossamer membrane that's over the world that knows more than I do, that is caring for my friend Peter in ways that I can't know, but that I trust. So I do that every day as well. 
I have a little uh, icon of uh, Christ Panto Creator, a little Greek Russian icon about this big with that blank look on it painted into Jesus's face. So you, you can't, you can't project onto it easily the way I understand it psychologically. You just have to be present to it because it's not an attractive Jesus that you're like, Oh, Billy, I'm, I'm with you in your suffering. It's like none of that. But I'm present to that picture, that little icon. And I was in Ireland in that chapter that is really a vital chapter for me. And I did that ritual in front of the altar in this desecrated monastery. I picked up a little, a little chunk of stone came off the altar. Hmm. There, I guess you can see it. Yeah. This is my touchstone. This is, I, I was thinking the other day, I, I say a Jesuit prayer every morning. It's called Memento Mori. It's remember my death, meaning try to remember, Bill, you're, you're immortal. You're going to. And I looked at the stone on my, and I thought, this is the most important thing I own. This is the most valuable thing in this house. I have a beautiful home with a lot of art. This is the thing I want to give to the person who would be come after me. This is this is it. It's a it's a piece of stone. It's part of what I pray with. So when I pray, I try to place my my first words are I place myself in your presence. Who's the your? Well, you, I don't. I can't answer that. But I place myself in your presence. You are inside of me, and I am inside of you. Those are my words every morning, the beginning, and then I'm silent. I don't say, "Please, I got a big test today, and that would be helpful." Nothing like that. That was my primitive prayer, and it was a, the fine prayer of a child. It's not a prayer of, a, of a, an adult, an individuated a person who's on a path. We learned that slowly over time. I didn't know that when I was young. I was all fine. So that's what I do when I pray. And I'm faithful to it because in the, with the question you asked about ritual, doing it every day is curative in the way that a ham hung over a fire is cured over time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I do appreciate I, that. I, I do, yeah. That's, that's a... Uh... It's not like curative, like I'm being healed of something. It's like I'm slowly turning into the person I am called to be, and I have to stay over the fire. I don't get to dabble like, oh, today I may meditate. No. I'm Luckily, I'm disciplined. Being sober is a great disciplining gift, as you may imagine. Being married is a, <laughs> it's a disciplining gift. But it's a gift. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a disciplined person, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm a little OCD, so it's like that's a piece of my story. But it's the it's the grace part of my OCD is that I stay focused on what I have to do today. So thank you. you said, pl- I thought you said play, and I thought I can't talk about play. There's no play. Okay, that's my- <laughs> <laughs> well. I have t- I have two responses to what you just said. One is that uh, one of the things. That is rarely mentioned in the fourth way, but sometimes will be, was by my teacher and, and others, is that uh, uh, we want to become everything. Well, Gurdjieff's, uh, one of Gurdjieff's central uh, uh, understandings was that everything eats everything else. And we want to make ourselves tasty to something larger than ourselves and not just uh, uh, bacteria, uh, etc. 
right? So the image of curing yourself like a ham, <laughs> I love that. I'll be using that one again for, uh, myself. Um, but but the other thing that, that throughout what you were just saying in response to my question about prayer um, is that one of the things that's, that I didn't understand as a child and I've come to understand is, is that one of the principal features of prayer is listening and not, not putting out there. It's not that it's not that it's inappropriate to put out their concerns that are personal or, or, or even impersonal, I suppose. But, um, but like, like the welfare of the world, something like that, something broad like that. But listening in a way that does not presuppose a particular answer from something greater, however that manifests, it strikes me is, is, uh, resonates, for, resonates for me. And I'm, I'm hearing in what you said, uh, some aspect of that, especially in the last, your last description of invoking divinity, I'll say, um, and then silence. So um, I know Stuart, Stuart has a question too, though. He's well, just well, I want to I want to tie this into something that was also in the book that resonated with me uh, because it's not something that is commonly talked about, even in uh, 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 spiritual circles. Is, is the equation of attention with love and that um, when we give someone our full attention, it's a very loving act. And this question has come up with us sometimes when we're asked in the fourth way tradition, it's, it has a reputation of being very dry and austere, you know, not a lot of heart because mainly because of some of the people who are its uh, embodiments uh, are, uh, uh, still working this, but self-observation, which is turning attention to the mechanical nature of oneself and the, just the functioning of the organism, the mind, the heart, the body, in all of its myriad faults and foibles from a non-judgmental place is a, its own kind of act of self-love. And when the way you describe prayer and the way Rob was describing it to me you know, when I think of love of God, it's like the listening and the listening for God is, is an act of love. And so all of that kind of ties together with this equation of attention, this, this commentary on prayer and this uh, sense that attention is an act of love. Attention and presence to me are very closely related, those two words. I was a therapist, as you know, for 35 years. Many of my clients were the same men I buried, meaning they had the same profile. They men raised in difficult environments who had a lot of self-loathing. And I was trained as a therapist. I had good training, but my training wasn't what worked in the office. When I came to know deeply, and I know this as a recipient of very good therapy and spiritual direction. I had the capacity to be present to these men and attend to be attentive to them as they were. 
many men that I worked with, I didn't work only with men later in my practice. I had a lot of women, but early on the first few years, it was all gay men with a lot of them with AIDS. And people were not attentive to them as persons. Mm. They were attentive to them perhaps as gay or AIDS or good looking, but not as persons. And I had on more than one occasion, men tell me, I, I break eye contact. I can't, I cannot countenance the eye contact with you, Bill. Because they were so not used to people having eye contact with them or who they were. I, I learned so much as a therapist about life, about the purpose of life and about what it meant to be human. But that I, I learned, I, I knew that at the end of my career as a therapist, that was the gift I gave people was being present to them and being attentive to them, seeing them as they were. I, I think it is love. I think attention is love. Some of I used to have a quote about that years ago, but those are all leaving me quickly these days. I, you, <laughs> in that little bandwidth there, it's failing me, but my heart and gut are still pretty good. But uh, Rilke said something about that. He said something about attention and love. But that's as good as I'm going to do in the rest of my life to say Rilke said something about that, okay? <laughs> You know, you said you were much older than, than both of us. You're you're only about four years older than me, and I'm having the same uh, 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 abandonment of words periodically. Um, so uh, you you're not alone. No, just you wait. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> get used to. My husband's ten years younger than me, and he's like, "Oh, what have I done?" I mean, it's like you're married to me, honey. You're going to deal with this, okay? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, uh, I, I certainly. I'm still, I'm filling in some words, <laughs> but uh, I, I notice I'm, I'm noticing some of them uh, evaporate from myself as well. So, I, well, but I, I actually I actually look at it as as an appropriate um, thing for for my spiritual development. Well, act, actually, it's an interesting. We've had this. In, we're, we're talking in jest here, but. What, no, not what, 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 what's, what's escaping <laughs> are the nouns. Yeah, the, the that's true. Is still there. I, I totally agree with that. And, yeah. and that, that, that's kind of uh, echoes that uh, uh, adage, God is a verb. Totally. I, I'm forget, forgetting names of people I love. Yeah. I will be talking about something. I go, and then, you know, I told, and then the name, I talked to him this morning, a close person, close friend, I got, you know, my friend who lives in Chicago, who has been my best friend since 1968. Oh, I mean, art. I go, yeah, art. Thank you. <laughs> but that's okay. Thank it's you. okay. It's totally okay. And, and, and I've, I've forgiven myself for my previous understanding that if you don't have all that available, all that mental machinery available, um, then there's something defective about you. It's not true. It's just not I true. That. I feel that way about my body, too. <laughs> I, knew I was a daily runner for 45 years. But I couldn't run a block now. I walk, but I, the running is over, and so be it. Before we uh, uh, in the recording, though, there's one topic I wanted to touch on here, um, and, and that's something you write about uh, towards the end of the book, uh, this notion of the dark night of the soul. And I'm just I'm interested in how 
maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and the because <clears throat> I was struck by your personal story, but it also was sort of reminiscent of the story of the uh, friend of yours. I think it was uh, David uh, who went through years of that and then came out of that, uh, uh, which is the great miracle when, when people. Totally. So the experience I had uh, when I was uh, my very late fifties that lasted for several years, I came to uh, use the metaphor dark night of the soul as a result of my friend, Robert giving me beer of ice star, who I first met at many rivers bookstore in Sebastopol, California, many years ago. Um, I, when I entered that period, it, it came like many events in my life. It came in a day. I was one day, I was where I lost my desire to live. It was not suicidal ideation by any stretch. I didn't want to die. I didn't understand it. And I thought it might be physical. And I shared that in the book that I addressed it as a physical, perhaps neurological complication. And it wasn't. But I lost my uh, spiritual connection. Lost it. It went away. It was in abeyance. It went into a cloud. It lasted for a long time, and it troubled me. It made me sad. I didn't talk to many people about this because, again, words are hard. But my friend Robert, uh, in, uh, who lived in Chicago at the time, Robert Thompson, I went to see him because he's a person I regard as wise, empathic, and he knew me. And he listened to me carefully. He's a man on a spiritual path. He meditates every day. His word. He doesn't use the word pray either. And uh, he went into a study and he pulled out Mirabai's translation of John of the Cross. And I was very condescending. And I said, I read that in the Navishad. Like, and he looks at me and he goes, you're not in the Navishad anymore, Bill. He's like, what you're experiencing is, is, is a spiritual crisis. I didn't like that language. I didn't like that implication. He was ultimately right. And I believe spirituality and psychology are twinned. What is psychologically, what is spiritually true must be psychologically true or it's not spiritually true. So I began to understand it in a way that I understand psychological phenomenon is that I had suffered some blows to my ego, which I thought was already housed very appropriately within myself. And in fact, it was pretty big. And it needed, I needed to have the experience of a reduction in my ego's reach. Not in my ego, the ego is vital for life, but in my ego's reach. And I'd relied on it too much and I had conflated it with the divine. Not, not intellectually or consciously, but I began to think, hey, you're, you're doing okay. So I began to try to understand it as a, an opportunity to um, access some humility, honestly. And I spent a long time coming to terms with that I thought I was in charge and I'm not in charge. I went to see my friend Laura, as I noted in that, and she, she she was like, "Oh, you are you are a case." It's like you you got work to do, brother. And I did have work to do. And she told me, "Don't pray, but go in front of those objects on your altar every day and let them communicate with you." That's how she thinks and talks. And I followed her instruction, and I read Mirabai's translation one 
page at a time, it was it was very difficult for me to read. I was resisting it. But slowly it, it I got pulled out. Back to my ham metaphor. Part of the curative of this ham was to be in that dry period for a long time until I got cured, not not healed, cured, until that was burned off, the dross on the ego. Looking back, and that ended about close to 10 years ago now, I am so grateful for that period, but it was a, it was a hard, arduous time. But I'm grateful for it. I, it qualified me to be alive today. And to be a human being, David had the same experience, very different, as I described in skeletal detail. He went away into a dark place, and it was, and he came through it. And when he came through it, he he really, people marveled at him. He was so alive, and as I say, he was a bodhisattva. He was a transparent person. He was love. He was love. Everybody knew it. And he could not have done that had he not gone through those dark years. Thank God he didn't die during those dark years. I'm grateful for that, but he didn't. So part of that, I can say divine plan, the the cosmos's interconnectivity, the synchronicity of life. We're not in charge. We're not in charge. This book is my testament to that I'm not in charge. I've done wonderful things. I've had so many opportunities but every, everything in that book is, I was invited to. I was invited to San Quentin. I was invited to Continuum. I was invited to the AIDS Foundation. I was invited to be a Jesuit. I was invited by my husband to fall in love with him. So uh, uh, one of the things that comes up here is, um, I, first I'll, I'll preface it by saying, um, every dark wood is unique to each individual. Surely. And um, and part of what was coming up for me as you were describing your own um, experience of coming to realize it, that you're not in charge is that you got a lot of positive approbation from the world for being in charge of lots of different things and taking being in charge of the care of people you loved being uh, maybe maybe the most down-to-earth part of it, but also all these organizations uh, being invited to preach, being invited to be big, a big person in the world. And so um, um, I can see why it might take some, some deconstruction to, uh, to uh, let go of that. It did. And I didn't, and the irony of that is I didn't fully know that. I was doing what I thought was, to use the phrase, the will of God. And I was. And I well, sure. also had a big ego involvement in it because I got so much applauded for it. Yeah. Oh. And not unrightfully. I, mean, I did good work. I, I, I copped to that. But, you know, it's complicated and, and it's simple. So That's interesting to me because I'm, uh, I was taking the first steps of announcing in my career life uh, – I need to retire to, and there's this question for me of like, okay, I know I have to do this. And it's, it's, it's like, I could keep, I could just keep going on for years, but I, I also, 
have this clear knowing that I have to make this step. And when I read that chapter, I was thinking about the same thing. Like, okay, so when all, all that's gone, how much affirmation have I really identified with? How much, how much of uh, that persona do I secretly actually cling to as a, uh, uh, as a support for who I'm being in the world? So it's a, I have the advantage of at least seeing the possibility coming, but and I have no idea what the uh, uh, reality will bring. But it's some. It reminded me that sometimes uh, our life in the world, even like for me, I, I think I you know nothing I've done. I, I I was asked you know like I found a job in a classified and a career bloomed up around it. I didn't look for the career. I didn't. I wasn't you know every time these things happened, it seemed to be like. Okay, I'm just following what's happening. At the same time, uh, in a worldly way, I'm enmeshed in it. So taking that away um, is definitely a good practice. And I, <laughs> well, I, I, know, I know not what wood that will be, but uh, uh, it will definitely be a wood of some sort. As we lose, similar to losing the nouns, it's going to happen to us. Yeah. <laughs> How we respond to the lack of nouns. I've really enjoyed this as well. Um, much more than I thought I would. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Well, I appreciate the honesty there. <laughs> well, you know, when you're a therapist, the hour is 50 minutes. And yeah. at 50 minutes, you are saying, well, thank you very much. Did you bring your checkbook today? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, two hours. It's good, though. I mean, it's like a college class. That's two yeah. hours. Right? Yeah. I, love, I love the academic life. So, so I, guess I, I guess I could say we've come to the end of our session. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Yeah, really appreciate it. I'll be there 15 minutes earlier. So perfect. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with William D. Glenn about his latest book. I came here seeking a person, a vital story of grace, one gay man's spiritual journey, published this year by Paulist Press. The following segment is a book reading event that Bill Glenn gave at Many Rivers Books and Tea on January 19th, 2023. It includes a riveting reading from a chapter of his book, as well as an extended question and answer segment. On behalf of Many Rivers, on behalf of Stuart and myself, and uh, Grady, all the staff of this store, it's my great pleasure to welcome Bill Glenn to this space and introduce, have him introduce his book to you. Stuart and I had the enormous pleasure of getting to read um, his book, I Came Here Seeking a Person, um, last week. And then on Sunday, we had a fabulous uh, uh, podcast discussion with, with Glenn. It was uh, really, really fun. Really, really, um, we, we, we touched on so many um, deep and and head laughs along the way, deep subjects and head laughs on the way. So, um, uh, I know many of you know him, but not everyone uh, may know William D. Glenn. Here, he is um, a uh, currently on the or runs the board, I think, uh, sure. uh, is is chair of the Graduate Theological Union, uh, along with Scott, I think, his uh, partner over there. And they um, have been working for a long time. They've done amazing work for 
many community organizations. I think uh, Bill's going to be reading some of the material that will outline some of that, so I won't speak more about that. But clearly, um, his background his background resonates with me as we were both Catholic boys growing up in the mid in the Midwest, and um, and Bill did a lot with what he was given. That's um, um, as strong an endorsement as I know know to do because uh, isn't that what Jesus had to say about the talents we are given? So he didn't bury his. They are uh, on display and will be on display for you tonight. So please join me in welcoming William Glenn. Thank you, Robin Stewart and Grady. Um, to all my uh, known friends here, I appreciate you coming. I thought maybe there'd be four people here, and there are more than four. <laughs> um, and I appreciate the people who I don't know, but hopefully will by the end of the night. Thank you for coming, for sure. Um, there's some other thanks I want to make. I want to acknowledge my spouse, uh, 41 years, Scott Hafner. Uh, who has been, uh, uh, let's say, an extraordinary life partner as well as an extraordinary supporter for this book project, which I think he thought would never happen. And then when it did, he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I also want to acknowledge that m my editor is here, uh, who has really worked with me for two-plus years, kind of on a daily basis. Um, Ida Ray Egley and her husband, Costa, I took a course several years ago at the JC on, I don't like this title, but I have to say it, Memoir Writing for Older Adults. <laughs> so I thought I'd go anyway. <laughs> and Ida Ray was the uh, professor, and she's really a marvelous teacher, but she's also a marvelous reader. So after this, it was like one of those short courses, six weeks maybe, I called her and I said, could we go to lunch? And I said, would you be my editor? Little did I know that she's edited many books and written many herself. She said yes, and we really embarked on a, a, a kind of an intimate journey um, and learned a lot about each other and a lot about the way the Spirit works in the world, that we got connected and are connected still. So I really want to acknowledge you. Um, I won't acknowledge all my friends here tonight, but you may come up in the conversation. Um, I want to say a little about this book. Um, this book has been percolating in me. I'm 70, I'll be 75 this year. This has been percolating in me since I was in my early 50s. It was a book I knew I had to write, and I resisted it mightily. Uh, I was haunted by the question of who are you to write, who are you to write this? Um, I was in Rome at the, I, I was a Jesuit for 10 years, which, which is an order in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, left right before my ordination, got sober, came out of the closet, the rest is my uh, history in California. Um, but we were in Rome, and I went to the Jesuit mother church, which is called the Jesu. And that's where St. Ignatius, who founded the Jesuits, was buried. And I went to his tomb, which is the most ornate Baroque Rococo gold thing on earth. <laughs> and I knelt in the little pray do to, I don't know what I was going to say to him. And I heard the word write. And I was like, and then a write. And then a third time, right, and I said, just got, I'm getting out of this church right now. <laughs> but I decided I needed to write. 
I had outlined this book about 20 years ago, and then I added many pieces to the outline. It's a memoir of sorts. It's not a diary. It's not an account of every year of my life. I'm a Jungian by training as a therapist. I spend my career as a psychotherapist. And I learned uh, through the graces of Carl Jung to begin to notice uh, synchronicity, intuition, moments, epiphanies, words, looks, events, bodies. And they were all indicators to me of events that were changing my inside. So I took 26 of those that were pivotal for me. Uh, and build a book around them. I wrote the book for people who grew up like I did, perhaps like Rob did, perhaps like others of you did, in a world which told me that my life had was valueless as opposed to valued. And of course, our psyche is formed around those messages we get when we're young. We actually retain those messages, I'm finding out, into our mid-70s. Um, and I used to think, because I spent uh, many, many years on both sides of the therapist's couch, um, they'd be gone when I was 60. <laughs> oh my God, they were just like fierce at 60. <laughs> They're still fierce, but they are allayed by many other um, shapers of my psyche, my soul, my heart, my body. Um, but the intent of the book is that someone will pick up this book who needs to begin to trust themselves to trust the interior voice that resides within, which is infallible. It's an infallible voice that we're given. It's the voice of the divine, if you like. It's the interior voice. It's the self, as Carl Jung said. I found out it's infallible. I found that out the hard way because I didn't trust it for a very long time until my habits forced me to learn to trust that voice. Okay, that's plenty of background. Um, I've chosen uh, uh, two sections from the longest chapter in the book. It's on AIDS. My work in AIDS, but about AIDS. AIDS in the gay community, AIDS in our lives, AIDS in the life of the culture. Uh, and I broke this into, it's a very long chapter, and I said to Rob when he asked me to do this, I said, how long can I talk to you? He goes, oh, you can go 30, or th I said, I cannot go 30 minutes, I'm, I'm not, can't do that. But I'll read both sections of this chapter. Uh, it's some of my best writing, I would say. Ida, am I, is that correct? Yes. Thank you. There are, there are others. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, and I'm reading it off a script because I, I didn't want to mess up my book by blacking out the parts I wasn't going to read, you know. I'm Enneagram One and uh, Virgo and Anal Retainer, so you get a lot of the mix right there, okay? <laughs> This is a sober chapter, sobering chapter, and I'll begin. The title of the chapter is AIDS, Medicine, and Miracles. I do not have AIDS. I am not HIV positive, but I am in another manner a long-time survivor. The virus has not breached my body, but long ago it breached my soul. When I speak to groups about the epidemic, which I do often, I have a standard set piece I begin with. I stand before you as one of you in every way that matters but one. I am your brother, I am your witness, I am your scribe, I am your counselor, I am your friend. And I am concerned, not so much about our dying, but about our living, about finding out just who we are in light of, in spite of, because of, 
and over against this epidemic that has done so much to define the lives of each of us. February 1982. I am 33 years old. I'm sitting in my studio apartment in Berkeley reading the gay rag, The Advocate, a short article about a doctor in L.A. who had recently seen five gay men who had each developed a rare cancer. Soon, physicians in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, also began noticing this deadly cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma. Within a year, the disease had morphed and included several new symptoms, among them a pneumonia called pneumocystis, toxoplasmosis, which was a formerly a uh, disease that one acquired by being around cats, and wasting, for which there was no specific clinical term Though in Africa, AIDS became known as SLIM. The week I read that article, my boyfriend, now my husband, Scott and I had been together just two months. He was young, 23, a year out of college. I was young, not that young, 33, three years out of a Jesuit seminary. What did we know? Very little, it turned out. Through the lens of this mysterious, voracious, and instructive virus, we would come to know much about ourselves and much about the world in which we live. Gay people were just starting to come out. Decades, centuries, really, of fear, pain, hiding, and lies were being turned aside. Folks were flocking to big cities like San Francisco for some measure of safety and community and love. And then, wham, right in the face, wham, right in the groin, Wham, right to the heart. Sex, this life force and elemental connector of human beings, this root of delight and sensation and love, without warning, meant this. Disease, and the worst, death. The men, overwhelmingly men, were filled as perhaps all gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender and transsexual and intersexual and queer and questioning and otherwise differently ordered human beings are with a significant amount of self-loathing having been raised to mirror the culture norms in which we live. Years earlier, I believed that I, people like me, were sick, repulsive, disgusting, shameful, these words. Maybe you use them yourself. Maybe on your worst days you still do. To add insult, the churches preached the dark twins immoral and evil. The states mandated illegal. Medicine, medical science prescribed abnormal and perverted. Families furtively added ashamed. Not a few kids were kicked out. Some still are. Some took their own lives. Some still do. A culture eating its young. You couldn't write fiction like this. Many of our friends got sick. Randy started to lose weight. He hid his weight loss with layers of clothing and a little blush, not wanting to appear to be ill. Stephen, so kind and sweet, the wrestling coach at a Catholic high school, got sick. As he grew frail, he told no one, not wanting to jeopardize his health, or more importantly, his health insurance. A sober friend, Marty, got AIDS. I had met him at AA, but he found it all too much. He went back to his drug. He was found dead in his garden on 39th Street in Oakland. Dead at 39. 
Ken, an ex-boyfriend of mine whose body became ravaged, his legs bloated and covered with Kaposi's lesions, encrusted with scaly pus. His main symptom? Shame. His parents had jettisoned him when he had broken through the closet door some years earlier. Soon I would preach his funeral at Most Holy Redeemer in the Castro. Though from a large Catholic family, no blood in the church. I called the largest of the new, many newly founded AIDS organizations, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, to volunteer and was asked to come on their board in 1984. Calling the foundation was my response to our friend Randy's diagnosis. Earlier that year, a friend had told me I should no longer kiss gay men. I thought to myself, if I risk getting the virus from kissing, so be it. I've waited my whole life. The next time I saw Randy, I planted a big wet one on his lips. I never looked back. I want to stop for a minute and acknowledge my friend Jude Sharp here, who I brought on the board of the AIDS Foundation in 1985, and we served at that agency and another AIDS agency for many years, and I really want to acknowledge your work in the epidemic. And having you here tonight is a great gift to me, along with your husband, Jack. AIDS soon defined Scots in my external world, and it worked its way inevitably into our internal lives as well. Keenly aware that we had not contracted the disease, we prayed nightly for those we loved, and over time, mostly lost. A certain pall hung over us. Illness and death are sobering. Constant illness and death are debilitating. The federal government's response to AIDS? Silence. So we compensated. We raised money. We had walks and runs and dances and garage sales and phonathons and endless direct mail campaigns. We did whatever was necessary to sustain the work. And every other AIDS organization, like my friend Erwin Keller's work with AIDS Legal Referral Panel for many, many years as their leader, they did the same. Castro Street was increasingly marked by emaciated young men walking with canes, skinny bodies dwarfed in well-worn 501s. At the foundation, we organized needle exchanges to teach junkies how to clean their works. We encouraged working girls of all genders to demand their johns use condoms. This was AIDS. This was the only medicine available. But let me assure you, there were miracles. When I joined the board of the AIDS Foundation, I was the vice principal and dean at the Catholic Girls High School in San Francisco, Mercy High School. We organized the first student forum on AIDS of any San Francisco school, and we required the whole student body, 800 girls and me, to attend. That day, my friend Pat Christen, she was an AIDS educator, went to the podium and warmly greeted our girls. Without ceremony, she pulled a banana out of her purse. Then she took out a package of condoms, and after opening the cellophane on the condom package, she <laughs> began to demonstrate the effective way to place a condom on a banana. <laughs> so, via the grounded metaphor, to teach our students how to prevent the transmission of the virus, because no one knew how it was spread. Some of the Sisters of Mercy were in the auditorium that afternoon, of course, and unlike some other seemingly responsible adults, they knew their job was to keep these girls alive. They took instruction on how to condom the banana in stride. They knew they were doing the good Lord's work that day, 
This too is AIDS. This too, good public health. And this too, the courage of these religious women. This was a miracle. I soon enrolled at the University of San Francisco and completed a graduate degree in clinical psychology and leaving secondary education, began private practice. I had no training for this, meaning AIDS. Young people were supposed to grow up, thrive, fall in love, grow old, but not these young men. Many regarded their diagnoses as punishment, a consignment of their lives to the death chamber, some affront to the divine, some insult to humanity. Of course, the forces of darkness who mistakenly believed they were forces of light swept in with their condemnations. Gay men are deserving of this. The great freedom that coming out and coming to San Francisco provided now seemed the dooming lie beneath a life openly lived. To be present with a young man near death, he struggling to make sense of a life, held in contempt by others, often including his own family. This is a humbling grace and a constant one. Ken, aforementioned ex-boyfriend, with his Capacy's sodden legs, had used his charm and good looks to win over many people. Now this just recently beautiful body had become a wasteland. He could no longer leave his bed, but he would put moisturizer on his once handsome face and proclaim, one has to keep up one's appearances. Shortly before his death, I was with him. He asked if I would get onto his bed and hold him. Of course. As I snuggled next to him and pulled his ravaged body into mine, he trembled with the accumulated fear and loathing he had held inside. He sobbed, as did I. We knew death was near at hand. He was 35. In 1990, as board chair of the foundation, along with our executive director, I went to Washington to a confab with the leaders of the nation's largest AIDS organizations. We were committed to doing civil disobedience, protesting Bush 41, I believe that's the right number, uh, his failure to adequately address the epidemic. We began our day at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, where I scurried to find Abraham Lincoln's name-plated pew. I placed my butt where his might have been and took my inspiration from his wise and valiant leadership. Several score of us were arrested on that World's AIDS Day. We were handcuffed and transported to a police facility for arrangement for arraignment. In our cell, we kibitzed about this unfathomable place our work had brought us to the epidemic's eight-year dark reign. It had come to this our asses on the pavement of Pennsylvania Avenue to move the government to action so our friends would stop dying in such great numbers. Eight years on, we were still waiting for great federal assistance. Scott had risen in the ranks to become the chair of the board of the AIDS Project in Contra Costa County, where we lived. A key service provider, his family in Sonoma County and mine in Omaha, Nebraska, all got involved in this life-giving work this seemingly endless work. So I'm going to read about my, my very dear friend David. I met my friend David Smith Fox Easter weekend in 1978. Both of us guests at a lively dinner party hosted by friends from the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. 
before I was a young seminarian. Seeing young, not so young, but <laughs> we soon became friends. Fast forward nearly 15 years. David was the longtime companion to his partner, Bill Kenkellen, both of whom lived with HIV disease for many years. One evening in early 1992, we gathered around Bill's bed in their apartment on 15th Street in the city to assist Bill in his transition from life to death to beyond. A cradle Catholic, Bill's mother and sister had come from Philadelphia to provide their son and brother comfort. His sister had brought blue day-glow rosaries from Philadelphia, and David asked if I would lead the prayers. These vigils, regular but never routine, combined the holiness of the sacrament of the sick with the sometimes irreverent warmth of a gay Irish wake. Here we were, a small group of family and friends in this elegant city apartment, kneeling around the bed of a man too young to die. The room was bathed in candlelight as we proceeded to pray the rosary, a repetitive medieval chant for this man we loved. I began with the ancient creed, and this quickly formed congregation responded in turn. We prayed the five, what are called by Catholics, mysteries, and mysteries they were, as was this whole saga of AIDS. After prayers, Bill still breathing that very labored breath of the near dead, we took turns reading the poetry of William Butler Yeats, the Irish revolutionary bard whom Bill, a rebel, a rebel himself, loved. He took his last breath, hearing the words of the poet, candles flickering, this makeshift community of love silently present, many silently weeping. David carefully drawing Bill's eyelids down over his eyes, placing the bedsheet out of respect over his face. Bill died steeped in David's love and the love of a beleaguered community of friends Another of the unheralded stories of Galat loves the epidemic silently recorded. David had been a consummate caregiver. He had left his employment as an attorney with the city to tend to Bill's needs. After his death, David was lost. He could not return to work. He was a spent man. He descended into the dark edges of the community that interstice where numbing agents of self-loathing intermingle. He withdrew, he lowered his shades, and he stopped communicating with those of us who loved him. His sister Catherine, my friend, and I made a pact to periodically look in on him to ensure, if nothing else, that he was alive. We'd go to his door of his flat on 15th Street, knock, and shout. We heard nothing, we could feel David's presence. David experienced the many ravages of this cursed epidemic. Ever the caregiver of others, he could not sustain himself. The church of his youth, to which he once aspired to be a priest, made itself, in essence, unavailable to provide honest spiritual succor. The community he loved was tired and increasingly finding those same numbing agents that David found. No-brainer antidotes to years of plague and bigotry and piled-up death. I was angry at David. I missed him terribly. I felt hopeless and powerless. After all these years, to make a difference for him, or for me, or for anyone. 
many in the poison grip of the virus would succumb to these subtler and equally onerous diseases, addictions of many kinds, isolation, the durable effects of trauma and accumulated grief, the loss of hope. Like AIDS, these diseases expanded silently and multiplied exponentially in this rare seedbed of self-loathing and disregard that had always been the true epidemic in the queer community. Persons convinced they were damaged goods. These adults, now convinced, having once listened to their parents or their preachers, believed they were responsible for their lesions, for their own dark fate. But even this ever more insidious epidemic, it was not to claim David. His elam vital, his humility, and the grace that enveloped his life eventually won out. In early 2001, he emerged from his time in that darkened cocoon. He made his way to 12-step programs and became, quite honestly, light. Transformed, a bodhisattva, a force of love with a capital L. He was alive, finally, fully, and forcefully. He made our prayer group his spiritual home. Like Lazarus from Christian scriptures, he had come back from the precincts of the dead to the land of the living. We easily regained our friendship. David celebrated Thanksgiving 2002, 18 months into his new and hard-won life, with friends in the city. Not feeling well, he went home early and called me to say he was going to call his doc. The next day, he was admitted to Davies Hospital on Castro Street. He never went home again. I visited him several times in the ensuing days. While his spirit remained strong, his body was clearly failing him. At one point, he took off his clotter ring that he, a true Irishman, had worn and gave it to me, a sign of our long friendship, of our grace love for each other. The end was to come in a matter of days. On the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, important here in Sonoma County, December 13th, his sister Catherine called and said, Come, David's time being short. We arrived at the hospital and entered yet another room bathed in candlelight. We gathered around him as the years of virus and other body invaders took its toll. Though now in a coma, David remained a witness to something light and large and true. Present in the room when we entered with a few friends were his siblings and David's many nieces. This was a worn group of men and women, worn down by death, by exhaustion, by, as they say in Ireland, by the all of it. At Catherine's request, I had brought some chrism, it's a Latin word for holy oil used for these rituals of death, that had been blessed by our anointing so many men's bodies over the past 16 years. We anointed David's body, each of us thumbing the holy nard and making a mark of blessing on his beautiful person. We prayed for him as he breathed like Bill had those labored breaths. We each took some time alone with him to say goodbye. I wanted to postpone this as long as possible. As others departed the room, I drew close to him and held this dear man in my arms. I thanked him for being my friend, my longest California friend. Since I, still a Jesuit, and he, an ambitious young lawyer, met on Holy Hill, 
innocent as lambs. I combed his thinning hair with my hand. I kissed him. I cried softly and then not. I finally left his side. He waited till we had all departed, as is so often the manner of the dying, to breathe his last. Some days earlier, knowing his end was near, he called me and asked me to deliver a eulogy. He gave me only one instruction. Billy, tell the truth. Well, the truth is complicated, and the truth is simple. One truth is, there are forces within us and without, dark ones, always needed to be contended with, for they can take us down. They do their dirty work, not only on our bodies, but on our souls. But they do not have the final power. There are even deeper truths at work, revealed truths undergirding our lives, for we are bathed in grace. Several days after David's death, we gathered at St. Ignatius Church on the campus of USF, the Jesuits graciously providing this magnificent building for David's memorial. The gathering was large, for David had known everyone. After family members had offered tender prayers for David's soul, I approached the pulpit. I preached as David had asked, speaking of both the darkness he suffered and the tremendous light which once again radiated from his face, his heart, his presence. As I spoke, I noticed a woman enter the side chapel. She took her place among the mourners. As the service ended, I went over to her and we embraced. With no makeup and not wearing her trademark fabulous red coat, her head shrouded with a scarf, Nancy Pelosi, who like so many others had admired and loved David, had come to bury her friend. I told her how honored David would be that she was there. She said, Bill, there's nowhere else for me to be but here with all of you, for I love David too. David's life and death symbolized the deepest of truths for me. Like David, we are all worthy of complicated, rich lives. And like David, we are each a reflection of the divine. But we only see this once we've emerged from our cocoons. Once we have been stripped of all the illusions that we are anything but worthy. And for this work, we are given each other if we are willing to break out of the alluring prisons that keep us apart. The simple and most complicated truth, and it's the truth of AIDS, is that we are made for love. But to receive this terrible knowledge, terrible like a thunderclap or a thunderstorm, we, stubborn as we are, must fall to our knees or put our butts in a lotus position, or stand with our arms outstretched and cry out to that divine in whose image we are made and with whatever words we can muster to bellow that we want to be alive, that we want to let go of all the lies that keep us wedded to some false, puny, pathetic facsimile of our true, divinely wrought selves. We want to avail ourselves of this love, this force that is the only force that transcends every other force we know. And we are given this gift so then we might offer it to each other. It always redounds to us. The Hindus call it karma. We might call it grace. This enduring truth of our lives. This grace brings us out of our cocoons into the light we first witnessed that day we emerged 
from our mother's wombs. This is what my great teacher AIDS has taught me. This year we marked the 30, 40th anniversary of this plague. But our work of loving one another yet and always awaits. Now, there's a lot of humor in this book, but this chapter did not have it. So go right to page... No. Um, I so appreciate your very attentive presence. I could really feel the presence in the room, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I would love to... Ha- a Q&A, questions, the comments you want to make. They don't have to be questions. They can be comments. Um, I can talk about the book further. We have a little time, don't we? Yeah. We've got about an hour and a half left, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear comments or questions. It would help me unpack the feeling I'm having right now. <laughs> Please, tell me your name, too. I'm, I'm Ginny Matthews, and, um, and I, too, lost... So I'm a dancer, choreographer in San Francisco, and I've lost so many of my beloved um, friends, dancers. The whole community is, was so affected. My my question was, what? How did David claw his way to the light? That is a a, a, a deep question, and the answer to that is. What was the question? Uh, how did David claw his way out of that dark cocoon into the light? Uh, if David were here, and you'd you'd enjoy him thoroughly because he was very funny and extremely gracious, he'd say, "Grace." He would say grace. You have to, if you are, if you suffer the disease that David and I share, you have to hit bottom. David's bottom was a long time in coming. He was in that previously elegant apartment in the city for nine years. We didn't see him. He was probably Scott's and my closest companion. We had many, we were blessed with many close to band, but he was a, a constant presence in our life, and it was over. But when he came out, I, I, my description of him is in not metaphorical language. He was like, oh, brother. He was alive. Um, and he had hit his bottom, and Grace pulled his sorry into the light. Thanks for the question. And you understood a lot of what I was saying about your own experience. It was constant. And choreographers were hit more than many other professions. <laughs> Bernie, Bill, can you say something more in addition to the voice of Ignatius, which I uh, can understand, I think. Um, what, what led you to, to actually start writing after having thought about his spiritual autobiography right in the late 1970s. What, what was it? That, Ooh. You know? You're a reader. Yeah. Uh, my resistance was enormous, and I mean enormous. And it wasn't, I, I, I believe I'm a good writer. It wasn't about the writing. It was about, I, I was haunted by this question, who am I? What authority do you have? to speak from a spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. And it took me a lot of my adult life to come to terms with the falsity of that question. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, as you know, I was a therapist for a very long time. And when I turned 70, four and a half years ago, I decided uh, to take a different kind of reckoning in my life. And the only reckoning that came to me was, you got to write that book, Bill. <laughs> so I gave myself nine months to think that through. I told my clients midsummer that I was going to retire in uh, Thanksgiving Day. I thought that was an appropriate day to retire because I was very grateful for my profession, for my life. Um, my last client left the office at about 5.30, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. I shut the door and I was like, I had this, this thing was lifted for me. I had extremely good boundaries as a therapist. I did not take my, unless the client was suicidal or in really deep trouble, I did my best for them in that hour. I didn't take them home, mostly. But what I learned is you take, I, I took 35 years of stuff home. And it was kind of lifted. Thanksgiving Monday, I went to my computer and I said, you're going to sit, I'm a little harsh with myself, you're going to sit at this until you and I started writing and then I was blocked and I went to Ida's class and Ida was like we'll have none of that in this class none of that blocking <laughs> she really was a she's kind of a therapist herself she kind of coaxes the writing out of you because she knows it's a truth that needs to be told and I'm, I was very honored she chose my writing two out of the six weeks to read to the class I was going so I began writing and I had outlined the book years earlier. I knew these events in my life. AIDS is an event. Some events were a word. A word. And I wrote a chapter about that word, how it changed my life. They were all events which, if I'm walking this path, the event required that I turn and redirect my life. Many of them were interior events in the Jungian sense or the spiritual sense. But some of them were like, AIDS came and my whole life knew it had to respond to this. So, But writing was uh, an obstacle. But once I started, it flowed until Ida's red pencil got involved, and then it didn't flow, and then I had to deal with that. But it pretty much flowed. Um, the editing was much more consuming than the writing, I have to say. Not at Ida's editing. She knows I edited, as Scott would say, this, uh, this book. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was so fortunate to have Paulus Press which is a very venerable 150-year-old house. I was at a dinner party, and a friend said, you sent it to Paulus. And I go, no, the Paulus wouldn't touch this. And he goes, send it to Paulus. You're so thick, Bill. I went, really? So on a Thursday, I sent four chapters and an intro to the publisher of Paulus Press. He called the senior editor on the weekend and said, I want to work with this guy. Who knew? And they have been terrific. Of course, they had another editor there trying to butcher my paper, my book, but that's what they do. They just they slice it up. They're invaluable. They are. Ida was invaluable. <clears throat> uh, thank you for that question, Bernie. Bernie's been my friend for 35 years, so that was a plan. Was that a plan question? No. <laughs> Please, someone else pull something out so I can breathe. <laughs> Breathe right now. 
without a question. Okay, thank you, Erwin. <laughs> now, do you have a question? Sure. Thank you. Um, I don't know, lots of them. Um, you and I talked at lunch yesterday a bit about what it's like to be um, in this year, so many years after we lost so many people, and the trauma and heaviness we carry with us and don't really deal with in our daily lives or express. And, um, and it's 40 years now. And I'm wondering what you're thinking about how are the ways that we, that we honor this experience and that we integrate it, metabolize it, um, and ritualize around it. Like what, what do you see as, as maybe what we need to be doing um, to not be sidestepping what we're carrying? That's hard, and, as you know. Um, when I was in graduate school in clinical psychology, the word trauma was not in a textbook. There was no sense of trauma. PTSD was being talked about in military circles by very bright and insightful psychologists and psychiatrists in 1980-ish. But two years later, it hadn't filtered into the psychological community. What I've come to understand about, and this is not exactly answering your question, but we'll get to it. We who were in the epidemic... And by in, I mean in. You were in, you were in, you were in, you were in. Carried uh, what I believe now is a form of PTSD. We were, you were in, maybe many others. We were um, traumatized in kind of a classic sense. And when we are traumatized, we do many things to um, seemingly normalize our lives. We pretend, we isolate, we compartmentalize, we repress, we suppress, we deny, we uh, confabulate, all in an attempt to deal with what's going on. I'm, I'm, I believe we will, never be, we will never be free of this. I will not be at my age. It, it marked my life. I chose to read this chapter because AIDS, which I, did, I don't suffer from HIV disease like many of my beloveds, but it's marked my life only one or two competitors for marking my life. Having been a Jesuit for 10 years, marked my life. Having been raised as an Irish Catholic in the Roman Church of the 50s, marked my life. But AIDS marked my life, and it marked our life. Scott and I had been together two months when we read about AIDS. And our first 10 years, first 15 years, I worked, later on I ran an AIDS agency, for, as you know, for many years in the Tenderloin, which is a very difficult neighborhood. I didn't include that here, it's in the chapter. At that agency, we served people who were mentally ill, substance abusers, late-stage HIV disease. Many of them were neo-homeless. We formed a community. We had wraparound health services, but we also had psychological services, art, spiritual conversations. We prayed together, even though we were government-funded, every day. And in that community, we had about 80 members at all times. We lost a member every week. We lost 50 a year. I was there seven years. So we lost 350 clients on my watch. We ritualized every death, and we built, we built a building, and we built a chapel, a non-denominational chapel, in the building. And when a client would come in, we would take his or her picture. But what's this size? Eight by ten or something? And we'd put them on the walls of the, of the uh, clinic. And when they died, 
we would take them off and we'd take them and put them in the chapel. By the time I left, the walls of the chapel, which are about as big as this area, were covered with the faces of men and women. That, that ritualizing helped us do the work. And it also helped these men and women who were really de-isolated know that when they died, they would not be forgotten. You, you undoubtedly know the AIDS Grove in Golden Gate Park. Mm-hmm. The Grove is very keen on ritualizing the after effects of AIDS and the current effects of AIDS because there are a large number of men and women living with HIV disease all over the world, of course, worst in sub-Saharan Africa and India and in Russia, but in our city, in our cities. Um, I would encourage you to go to the AIDS Grove in Golden Gate Park. It is profoundly moving and so aesthetically pleasing. Of course, gay people designed it and pulled it off, so what can I say? (laughs) We have our gifts. um, Other than that, you know, in in my own spiritual practice, and I know you have a spiritual practice, I have a list of people who I love who have died, and I say their names every day. I have a subsidiary chapter of this about my friend Larry Tozio, who I helped take to his death. Uh, I miss him. I talk to him all the time. I don't talk to my mother, whom I love dearly. I don't talk to my dad. Both of them are dead. I talk to Larry all the time. That's one of the healing things for me. Because I miss his... He could get right through me and call me... And Scott appreciated Larry so much. <laughs> That's one thing I do. I... I I presided over probably 30 funerals, as undoubtedly you did. Erwin's a rabbi. Um, So I brought, I was trained as a Catholic liturgist. I brought the wisdom of liturgy and ritual to those funerals. But that doesn't answer your current question, because I don't have a good answer. I know what I do personally. I don't proselytize that. Well, maybe my book's a proselytizing. (laughs) Thank you. Other questions or comments? Thoughts? Feelings, but these are therapy words. Feelings, body sensations. <laughs> <laughs> your mom stuff, your dad stuff. I would love to have you spin on the title. The title of your book. Thank you. Have you read it? No. Okay, that's a. I've just read the title, but I don't remember it right now. So I've had several great teachers in life. I mentioned Carl Jung. My greatest teacher was a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton, mm-hmm. who is my teacher to this day. Thomas Merton died when I was 20. I remember where I was the moment I heard it over the radio. I was shaving, preparing to go on a date, and I, I couldn't believe Thomas Merton was dead. He was a man of enormous intellect. He corresponded with everyone interesting and attractive on the planet Earth. He wrote numerous tomes on the spiritual life, and he taught me as much as anyone how to be a human being. Four or five years ago, I read these words in, from Merton. I came here seeking a person. So it stuck with me. I put it on my corkboard next to my desk. And when it came, I had so many names for this book, you would not believe it. Melissa. <laughs> they were all superb. <laughs> I didn't show any of them to Ida. And I settled on the first, I, I settled on this. So I went, I have a huge Merton library. And I belong to the International Thomas Merton Society, so I have access to the archives in Kentucky. I couldn't find it in my library. 
I know what these books well. So then I wrote the head of the International Thomas Merton Society, a wonderful guy, and I said, John, can, can you find it? And he goes, yeah, we have everything in our database, Bill. She called back about a month later and goes, we don't have that quote. I go, it's in there. Look harder. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd have to abandon it, but I knew I had seen it. Mary Gordon, the Irish novelist, had written a book um, on Tom, called My Thomas Merton. It's a sl slim book, and it's, I love her writing. It's not one of her great books. But I thought to myself, I bet it's in. So I went back to my, I don't throw any books away, I should, but <laughs> I went to, I found Mary Gordon, I pulled it out. And this is a quote from Merton, a, the book he wrote right before I entered the Trappist in 1941, called My Argument with the Gestapo. Mm. And in that book, he uses this line. So this is how I expanded upon it. This, t this subtitle, the Paulist Press put in, I told them, no, I don't like that. They go, we don't care what you like. We're marketing your book for you. Okay. <laughs> and then that's my edition. So that's how the title. Can you read the subtitle? Yes. Um, the one I don't like is called The Vital Story of Grace. And then in smaller print, they were really doing what they wanted. One Gay Man's Spiritual Journey. I originally didn't have the word gay in it. I just said, my original title. <laughs> you shouldn't have asked those questions. <laughs> Notes from the Interior. <laughs> I thought that was the most superb title. And, and he calls back and he goes, it's like a Bill Bryson book about the body. I go, that is not, that's not kind or nice. He goes, look harder, Bill. Anyway, this is the way I understand this. I came here, here tonight, here everywhere. I came into the world seeking a person. And I've come to know over the course of a life, I'm seeking this person. I'm seeking this person, I'm seeking this person, and I shouldn't really point out because my deepest sense of the divine is an imminent, but I'm seeking the divine person. And if I find this person and this person, I will find this person. And if this person finds me, I will find this person and this person. And the introduction is a very long explication of that using a liturgical metaphor that you must have found exceedingly boring, not from our tradition, but maybe you're a good <laughs> liturgist, so maybe you did, but I go into it probably, and they didn't edit it out, either did I, what can I say? I had two good editors. Anyway, thank you for asking that question. I, I just think you would like their subtitle better if you thought of Grace as your drag name. <laughs> well, I've never done drag in my life, uh, but I uh, was looking for a website designer, and I called a friend of mine uh, who works in Silicon Valley, and I said, do you have it? He goes, well, I, I know a, a young woman, she's here from China on a, a green card, her name's Grace Guo. So I called her, she, she's one of the most marvelous people I've ever interacted with. And he had sent the name of the book to her, and she said, in perfect English, Oh, Bill, I would work with anyone who includes my name in the title of it. <laughs> you got it, girl. We're working together. <laughs> Questions, comments? Quick question Helen. about um, the evolution of your spirituality. You were uh, raised Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. You went through recovery. You came out as gay. So far, you're tracking with me perfectly. Yeah. Well, and so, you very fond of the Western Roman Church, and yet 
what you speak of is very broad and very Eastern in a lot of sense. And I know there's a lot of expression within the Roman Catholic Church that is uh, not really understood by not the non-spiritual person. But how do you... Choose the After, word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, when, when you came out, uh, how did that evolve? I mean, your faith is obviously very important to you. How did you wrestle? So I was a Jesuit when I came out of the closet. Mm -hmm. I got sober on Labor Day. A month later, Harvey Milk was talking in Civic Center. There was a horrible proposition on the ballot that would deny all gay people the right to teach in any school, private or public, in the state. Mm -hmm. I went over to the Civic Center for this rally, and I wore my Roman collar so I could be thought of as a liberal friend of the gay community. (laughs) Who, Who was I kidding? (laughs) <laughs> so Harvey Milk had a standard speech he gave and it was a very powerful speech if you saw the film Milk he gives the speech in Milk and it's that we're not afraid today I'm going who's not afraid today he goes we're here for the little boy in Fresno or the little girl in Bakersfield who feel they're all alone and in front of me I was 29 there were two young men maybe mid 20s with their arms around each other I had never seen that in my life and I started to weep and I took the Roman collar, the tab out of my Roman collar, because I was ashamed of myself. And I went home on BART. To, I was living in the African-American community in Oakland. And I put a piece of paper in my selectric, and I wrote, I am a gay man. It was over. I petitioned to be ordained as a Jesuit priest. I was given permission as an out gay man. But I knew the future for me would be one that would try to clamp down what I knew to be my gifts at every turn. So I left the Jesuits. I stayed in the Roman Church for 10 years. 1988, I'm driving on Folsom Street, which I find very synchronous. And I heard the words, you can't stay in the shadow of the church any longer. I wasn't fully invited into the church. I was in the shadow because the seven sacraments of the church, only one was really available to me, penance. (laughs) The Eucharist, marriage, all the... I thought, I, I... I, I need to live my life. So I began a journey that is now about 38 years old, 35 years old. I worship with Episcopalians very happily. Uh, I was trained as a Jesuit. I'm very grateful for my training, for the spiritual vocabulary I received, but more than that, for the instruction how to go inside, which Jung and Thomas Merton and the Jesuits taught me, this is where you're required to live. In the book, I call myself a complicated Catholic. I used to say I was a diasporal Catholic. Then I would say I was a Catholic on the outside of the walls. An Anglo-Catholic, perhaps? I am a, a person deeply drawn to the person of Jesus. Deeply. Not the person of Jesus that American culture has any whiff of. Any whiff of. It, it guides me. And my interior guides me. I, I really, as Scott knows probably to his great regret, I really trust this voice inside. And I tell him about it. He's like, oh, that's an interesting voice you have going on there. But I do. I really appreciate your question, Alan. So you speak You speak about that in the book. You know, uh, a lot about it. Nice. Last chapter in particular. Yeah. There's a big chapter on my coming to terms uh, as a Jesuit with being gay. I mean, I knew, as many of us did when I was a boy. 
but I grew up in 1950s conservative Roman Catholic, Irish Catholic family in Omaha, Nebraska. I had very loving parents and I have tremendously loving sibs from a very large family. But I knew without conversation with any human being this was taboo. And then as it turned from taboo into I've done something profoundly wrong that I've been cursed with this. And what have I done wrong and why can't I find it out so I can offer an expiation to the divine for the thing that I am? And that lasted from freshman year of high school until I was 29 years old on a daily basis. And many people in this room know exactly in their own experience what I'm referencing. So to be here today as a 75-year-old man married to this beautiful man for 40 years, living my life fully by my own lights, with the many teachers I've been provided, several of whom are in this room, my spiritual journey has been a total gift to me. A total gift. So I want to ask something like, Jude, you know my light side. Ask me. Ida, thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to say that um, I, part of what oh, I loved about them, there are so many things I loved about the book, but... <clears throat> I loved the Glenn family. I felt when I'd finished reading it, I, I loved the Glenn family. Partly because some of the beginning parts when you're kids and so on and you're understanding, starting to understand who you are, um, they help you in odd and interesting and funny ways and your, your parents are so human in those chapters. And then the Glenn family follows you right through. So they I'm do. A gay man, and they, they do. Wow, that's interesting. We're from Omaha, <laughs> and they go right along with you. And with Scott, love Scott. And there's so many beautiful things about that family. They let me come to Omaha because Scott's going. That's how it is now. They're like, "Are you coming with Scott?" I go, "Yeah, I'm your brother." Go, I'll tell you a tiny story about what you referenced. I came out to my parents. I'm a little too um, well. I write a lot, so I wrote a paper on coming out. Of course I did. It was 10 pages long. And my parents were daily cocktail drinkers, so I knew at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I asked my brothers to leave the house. This is 1978, Christmas. And I sat my parents down. I was four months sober, so I had a cranberry juice. They had their martinis. And I gave them each a copy of the paper. And I said, we'll read this, and then we'll talk about it. I, was, I, I had been a teacher in a boys' prep school for many years. I was like, here's your paper. Read. We'll discuss. So they read the paper. It took about seven, eight minutes. My, mother's, my mother was crippled by polio, as you well know. And her body was mangled from the age of four until her death. And her her body, as people who are crippled do, they have, she learned to compensate. So her, she was sitting in her chair, and she sat in a very awkward way, but she put the paper on her lap, and she put her hands over the paper, knowing that next to her was my dad, and she knew what was brewing inside of him. So as soon as she saw his, he lifted his eyes, she said to me, I'm sitting where Ida is, she said, I've known this since you were four. <laughs> And I said, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> and she said, what if I would have been wrong? And you would have thought. I said, it's, say no more. Then my father says, now we never have to talk about this again. <laughs> <laughs> my mother says to my dad, and she had his bead after all these years, oh, Bill, his name was Bill also. 
this is just the beginning of a conversation we're never going to end. So my family is a very important part of my life. When you're raised in a big family, it takes on perverse meanings, but there's a lot of love, and I received that and still do. Thank you. Please. I just want I know I, I, can't, I won't remember everything that I wanted to say, but I just wanted to say I love this. You put a stamp, you stamp my, you affirmed me, and I'm going to get your bloody book. I mean, that's <laughs> And But I just felt like, and I'm from Philly, and I have a family of 10 brothers and sisters. Okay, you, you were in the book. And so I got, so as soon as you started talking, everything, your humor, everything, it's so cool. I ever, how everyone's connected. We just, we have, I don't know, it just blows my mind how usually the people that I like the least become my best friend, right. friends. Because of what I don't have, and I need that. And like I don't know if it's going to come. Um, to, I I just found out like yesterday. I just saw a um, thing outside that said that you were going to be here to speak to and this speaking. I just felt like something I need. I just need to know other and to know that other people just like love the same kind of stuff that I that I think is so important. So I just wanted to thank you for doing what a beautiful service. You're very welcome, and you have a book in you. <laughs> and that's the woman to talk to before you lose that. Oh, I, I mean it. I, you, you said that's many... That's things I love, writing. Right. Like, I write so much better than I speak, because I had a Most of it's true. And everything's backwards. Mm. Like, my brain mm. thinks everything backwards. Mm. But, and I think I'm... The most uh, the most spaced out person in the universe, and yet when I write, my hands just start moving, doing all saying all this stuff. And it's like, oh, thank you. Please continue. Okay, <laughs> thank you. You're very welcome. Will you put it on Audible? Um, I don't know if it, it has to sell enough. It it has to sell enough <laughs> in paper for it to go on Audible. Thank you, Melissa. I'll give you your... <laughs> Tell me your first name. James. James. Yeah, I, I also come from a large Catholic, Irish Catholic family, and the funny thing was, I'm changing which sibling I'm giving the book to first. <laughs> you know, my sister who went to Pennsylvania to help her friend die, my other sister who was with ACT UP, and, wow. you know, and everyone. My older sister doesn't speak to me, but maybe this would do it. And, but I never could get through this little story now. Maybe I need a different part. You're older now, I suspect. It might work. Give it a second try. Okay. Yeah. It works for every book but Catch in the Riot. If you read that now, you will be appalled that you thought it was yeah. worthwhile as a young person. Lauren, my dear friend. Um, so the, the stories about the 80s are you know, you brought up all these images of these 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. I'm just wondering if as you were writing the book, you know, a book is a kind of a trans transmission across generations, right? It's, it's kind of keeping a voice going. Did you have kind of like 30-year-old gay men who are living today in the area as the audience? And if you did, is there something you're trying to say to them? 
I mean, what would you hope they would get when they read that book? Because this pandemic is so far away from them these days. Well, the pandemic's far away from them, but the deeper truths that we learned, several of us in this room, um, are, I think, more necessary than ever. And I think that's true in the gay community. I think um, there are some I'll answer your first part first because it's been I teach the Enneagram as you know and I do an Enneagram workshop every year up at Bishop's Ranch and last year a young man 30 years old came I, I know most of the people who come to Enneagram workshops are mainly you know our age so this he was a kid lovely kid and he said uh, I, I, I go around there and introduce himself I said how did you hear about the workshop and he said well I saw you online at Commonweal and I wanted to meet you and come to your workshop I go how do you and he goes well I first saw you online I mean you know, I, I never searched for myself so he found stuff and he went, so he comes up gay man I didn't know he was gay and uh, at the end of the workshop he goes so would you be my therapist? And I go, I, I can't be your therapist. I'm retired and I'm really honoring my boundaries. <laughs> she goes, well, how about being my spiritual director? And I go, you're pushing it, brother. <laughs> no, I'm not doing any of that. And he goes, do you like the word mentor? <laughs> so in one of the Christian Gospels, there's a little parable of the woman who kept haunting and she finally was, so I said, I don't care what word we use, yes, I'll meet with you. <laughs> well, he turns out, as most people who are sent into our lives, to be a total mensch, and he's a wonderful person. And he was so interested in this. Because he knew, he had, not, he had missed the epidemic that we experienced, but he knew he was living in the after effects of it, in the psychology of the gay community, which is, I believe, deeply wounded, among people who weren't even born yet when we were doing our work. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the heritage of the patrimony of the epidemic. Mm -hmm. And you see all these laws that are being offered in all these states on this very day. Mm -hmm. Trans kids now are the object of the vilification of all LGBTQ. They're the easy target in every state, mm -hmm. not every state, many states. are. In, I read it tonight uh, uh, before I came. In Montana, if you're a public library and you have any books referencing gay, they'll be taken out of your library by state authorities. Like, so this is what we're dealing with, the heritage of this. Um, for young people, especially, I did not write this book just for gay people. That's why I didn't have the word gay in it. And he goes, really? Bill, really? Is that Everyone learn to trust the voice inside and to trust the connections that are true, true for them and to begin to understand that we are provided for through grace, through love, and that it is a worthy subject for us to devote our lives to. That's particularly true for gay people who are still raised. The proceeds from this book, a portion, are going to go to the Trevor Project, which is a project in L.A. which helps, helps thwart gay suicide. Four out of ten gay kids in the United States between the ages of 14 and 24, four out of ten last year contemplated suicide. 
one attempted it. These are incredible numbers. And you go through large swaths of the Christian nationalist world, gay children are brutalized emotionally, traumatized, without any resources inside. I, this is a I feel deeply blessed with resources I had in 1978. And so, thanks for that. Whichever one you are, thanks for that question. <laughs> Maybe uh, two more questions, and then we'll do some book signing for all the people who weren't necessarily going to buy a book, but then were so enamored <laughs> of the tax, they've decided to buy three. <laughs> or Philadelphia, she's buying a dozen. A um, couple more questions. Maybe someone who doesn't know me so I can be... Or Jude, you can be. Yes. Tell me your first name again. John. John, thank you. Yeah, um, I really like that you like Thomas Merton. He really influenced me a lot, too. And as you might know, he died in Bangkok. He got electrocuted. So he was very interested in Buddhism. I wonder if you've been influenced by Buddhist teachings at all? Like everyone who's raised in, uh, who lives in Northern California, <laughs> I have been influenced by Buddhist teachings. But the Dalai Lama said something many years ago. I went through a period where I was—I've never been a Buddhist. I have Buddhist friends here, but the Dalai Lama said something that I took as an instruction. He said to people in the West, he said, "Go to your go to the religion you were raised in, and find its deepest truths." There is a Buddhist teacher named Norman Fisher, who, Jewish, is really a brilliant guy and he writes brilliant books. He decided, he's still a Buddhist teacher, he's still a Buddhist, but he decided to reinvestigate Hebrew scripture. And he wrote a, a, a version of the Psalms. It's the Psalter I use every day. This version of the Psalms is, it's exquisite and spare. It has a Buddhist feel to it. Opening to you. Opening to you. It's, it's so marvelous. I'm not a Buddhist. I have several Buddhas in my house, in our house. Uh, I love them deeply. That man gave me a green Buddha about 20 years ago, and it's on our mantle. I love it so much. I believe, ultimately, that we will, over eons, discover that the voice of the divine comes through every bodhisattva, every teacher. I love Jesus. I impart to Jesus some very high qualities. But if I were a little Hindu boy in India, I would have a devotion to the Hindu gods. I know that. If I were uh, raised in Bangkok, I would be maybe wrapped in some beautiful crimson. <laughs> I would like that a lot, actually. <laughs> if I was Native American in the 17th century, how beautiful to have natural nature religion. How utterly beautiful and intuitive. So we learn from each other. At the GTU, where I serve on the board, the GTU is a consortium of every major religion in the world and several Christian denominations, a Jewish center, Islamic center, a Hindu center, a Buddhist center, a center for nature and religion, women and religion. We're a degree-granting institution in which the interreligious dialogue is profound. And it's there to heal the world because the world is riven by religious strife. If you look around the world, with the exception of, well, Putin's using religion plenty, so many conflicts are based on religion. So, one more question and then well, I'll go to Mimi's together. No, just kidding. You're not going to Mimi's. <laughs> one more, please. One more question. 
entertain the author. <laughs> what, was the hardest, what was the hardest part of the process and writing and editing and just getting through the whole project? That's an insightful question. Can I talk to you about this? <laughs> um, Ida, among others, told me uh, something I already knew, that if you're going to do this, you have to tell the truth. I believe you said, if you didn't, Annie Lamont did. The reader will know, if you're telling a story, the reader will know intuitively you're leaving something out. Something about the story is not going to make sense. True in fiction as well. If you're reading fiction, and the author leaves out a detail that you need to know to understand the character, the reader will be disappointed and eventually abandon the book. I knew that, theoretically. In the book, I tell some uh, difficult stories from my life. One related to my dad that is very painful. One about uh, an event that occurred to me when I was um, 21. Um, and then I went through a period several years ago of real darkness. Those three, three events were very hard to write about. The hardest was to write about my family, honestly. I have eight siblings, and I had to tell we, we, my truth. And my truth had a scalding quality to it about our father. I dreaded, you know, I say this in the book, if you're in a large family, and you know this, everyone has a different parent. <laughs> everyone has a different dad and a different mom. So my bro- I have five brothers, three sisters. My brothers kind of all know our dad. My sister's like, I think he was recently canonized, actually. <laughs> so I dreaded two of my siblings in particular who really worship my dad reading this. So I called my brother John, who's my baby brother and my closest friend in the family. And I said, what should I do about Lisa and Doc? And he goes, send him the chapter. I was like, I can't send him the chapter. He goes, I I need a lot of tutelage, right, Scott? (laughs) Send him the chapter. So I did. Neither of them had a negative word to say to me. Mm -hmm. So then I sent it to all my sibs. So they, I think you advised me to do this, actually. So that my sibs to whom I have a special responsibility, as do you, even if it's complicated. I didn't want any surprises for them. I didn't want them to be reading the book and feel embarrassed. If they felt embarrassed, they could, but I didn't want, I wanted them to get get embarrassed first on their own rather than in public. So that was the hardest part, was writing those three chapters. The chapter when I was 20 is complicated and very hard to write about, and then the chapter, which is the third to last chapter about what I call the dark wood. It was a, a debilitating time, and it was a very important time for me to go through. And it was the opening to even greater grace. But it was harrowing to write. Okay, that was the last question. Thank you, TJ. <laughs> One synchronous moment. I came here about eight years ago because Mirabai Starr, who's a beautiful and well-known spiritual writer, was coming, and my friend, Bob Thompson, who's a big guy in his world, said, you have to go meet Mirabai at Many Rivers. So I came out here and met Mirabai. Eight years later, she wrote one of the most 
endearing endorsements of this book. So I have Rob and Stuart to thank for that synchronous moment where Mirabai and I connected. So thank you both for hosting this and for allowing me to go on. Well, it's my uh, pleasure to thank you on behalf of Many Rivers for this wonderful evening tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with William D. Glenn about his latest book, I Came Here Seeking a Person, A Vital Story of Grace, One Gay Man's Spiritual Journey, published this year by Paulist Press. William D. Glenn, a psychotherapist and spiritual director, is a longtime leader in the LGBTQ plus community, Influenced by Thomas Merton, Carl Jung, the Society of Jesus, and queer culture, Bill elucidates moments in his life from his childhood in an Irish Catholic family mid-20th century through his nearly decade as a Jesuit to his subsequent life as a sober, out-married gay man. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.